When Captain America throws his mighty shield, all those who chose to oppose his shield must yield. If he's led to a fight and a duel is due, then the red and the white and the blue will come through when Captain America throws his mighty shield. America was at war, and across the country, anybody who could make it to the draft board under his own steam was healthy enough to be in uniform. And at a secret meeting in Washington, a strange experiment was about to begin. Hello, and welcome to Third Degree Burn, a podcast that looks at all things John Byrne. I am Tim Elliott, and with me as always is the Blue Falcon to my Dynamut, Brian Hughes. Hello, hello, or woof, woof. No, I'm Dynamut, you're Blue Falcon. Uh, oh, Blue Falcon. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how he does that. You know. <laughs> anyway, hello. 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 <laughs> uh, let's see. Today on our show, we're going to be talking about, well, I'll, I'll, let me let me preface that by saying, um, of course, our show is about all things John Byrne. And uh, John Byrne himself was very respectful of the, the work and history of one Jack Kirby. And uh, in tradition with both of them, since this is our true fourth episode, we're going to go back and pull a Golden Age character out of the box and discuss Captain America number 255. Now, this is the 40th anniversary issue welcoming Captain America, the living legend. Um, and it came out in, what was it? It came out actually in 1980, though the cover date was 1981. But before we do that, What's what's new in the world with you, Tim? Uh, well, just to piggyback on what you just said, Friday was Jack Kirby's birthday. Oh so yeah, that that's is right. very that. that is very you know connective there. Happy birthday to the king! That's right, the one and only. Long may you ring. Not a lot of news. I've got um, I completed my run of John Byrne's Blood of the Demon, so I'm got that complete run. So I'm I'm kind of anxious to jump into that and cover that in the show. I'm one step closer to my completion of my Marvel team up. I and what's odd is I the last issue I got was the last John Byrne issue I needed to uh, 53 where he teams up with the Hulk and Wood God. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, John Byrne news. I know the the newest version of Star Trek New Visions is going to feature Gary Seven. Oh really? Okay, I, I hadn't seen that yet. I've I've been reading those over the past couple of days, and I've gotten through the first four, and I'm really enjoying them. Yeah, they they're they're pretty good. I'm, I'm interested in, from a Photoshop standpoint. I'm more interested in seeing the way he has pulled images throughout the series and manipulated them to make them fit the story he's trying to tell. I thought it was interesting in the Harry Mudd story. Uh, I guess you know, uh, was it Roger Carmel played Harry Mudd? Um, Carmel, yeah, or Carmel, yeah. Now, yeah, now of course, he's he's passed away long a long time, and I, I'm wondering if they were not able to get the rights to use his likeness because you never actually saw Harry Mudd's true face in the whole story in in in, in the course of the book. It was always from the back of the head whenever they actually had physical Harry Mudd, because as you know in the story, they actually uh, make Harry Mudd to look like Captain Kirk. Yeah. Well, that's but, interesting. I wonder if he has the rights to pull from anything that originally showed on a TOS episode 
why would he not have the rights to show Harry Mudd? Yeah, well, you know, he said he said on his webpage that he had had some trouble. No, not, I'm sorry, not on his webpage, but in the uh, the notes in one of the books that he did. In one of the Fimetti's, there was a, a note section where he was talking about putting it together. And he had originally started off just trying to redo the episodes. And, you know, of course, he did, he was, he had done, uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before, was trying to do Where No Man Has Gone Before. And even trying to reproduce those pages within the notes, he couldn't get, uh, rights to show all the characters. And so he had some of them blocked out. And I think it was, uh, I'm not sure if it was Sally Kellerman. No, no, he had, he was able to show shots of her. Uh, maybe it might have been the Marcus Piper character, but he wasn't able to show one of them. Uh, one of their faces, so he had to block it out. So yeah, he's he's having to, I guess, get some rights at least to be able to show some of the characters. Obviously, the main seven he can he can show every time, and he had Gary Lockwood with no trouble. Yeah, <clears throat> and so, in one of them he has um, uh, Nurse Chapel. Uh, yeah, Major Barrett. <clears throat> Major Barrett, but she's not playing Chapel. She's playing number two. Number number one. Number one, sorry. Number one. Of course, and, and that's the, the beauty of it in, in the Fumetti's and even in his other uh, Star Trek stories, he never tells us what her name is because they never told anybody what her name was. She was just referred to as number right. one or whatever rank she is. The same with like, – she's the main character in Crew. Crew, yeah. And that. I really enjoyed that a lot. Um, anyway, so what else we got here? Um, uh, there's – I saw on Newsarama that they've released supposedly some concept posters or images for Civil Captain America Civil War. And they're, yeah, they showed the various sides. Right, the people have you know they've they picked the side they're going to support. Those are actual posters, and I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, they don't really talk about um, where where Spider Man is. I mean, obviously, you know, from the story, he was on Iron Man's side, and didn't he change sides later on in Civil he War? He changed side. Yes, he he was because he worked for Stark, and then once the whole I think uh, I haven't read Civil War since it first came out, but since he we revealed his identity to the public, and then at one point he decides that he needs to uh, flip sides, and he starts supporting Cap. I don't know though. With Iron Man having War Machine and the Vision, that's that's a lot of power there. <laughs> and I, I guess Thor is not involved, is he, or is he? I would think Thor. I don't know. I would, it just it just depends on he may be too big a character to come into. Well, it depends if Iron Man is going to be there, or is it going to be not Robert Downey Jr. Will it be no, just... Robert Downey Jr. Is, is playing a big part in Civil War. He's, right. So he's yeah. actually going to be in it. Yeah. No, no. I don't know. I haven't read much about what's, uh, you know, this I mean, kind of like Paul Spare on that. I don't really want spoilers. I kind of just want to stay away from what's yeah, going no, on and just, just experience it when it hits the screen. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm kind of that way with Star Wars now too. Uh, you know, they're showing, they're starting to show some more stuff and they put out something this week where they, 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 gave away a big plot point and I'm just like oh I wish I didn't know that I'm kind of staying away from Star Wars I mean I'm really excited to see it but I just want it to be okay, well, I'll, I'll oh it's here yeah don't know any spoilers but speaking of Star Wars I read that they are predicting a 615 million dollar opening weekend <laughs> well uh, one of the things I heard and I just I don't know how smart this is is that they have got all the IMAX screens booked up for Star Wars for the entire month. Not surprising. So if, if any other movie comes out, you, you will not be able to see it on an IMAX screen. 
Well, and this will be in 3D, won't it? Yeah, uh, it's going to be 3D, I think. I don't know if they're shooting or if they're doing a post-conversion. Uh, but, it, I mean, it's going to be released in 3D. Yeah. Yeah, because I saw a 3D trailer for when I saw Ant-Man. It, it, it doesn't make sense for me to do for them to do that, though. I mean, it, you know, they're, they're doing Star Wars in such an old-school type of way. You know, they're doing everything, practical effects and all that, trying to stay away from the digital effects and all that. I, I don't see any reason for them to, to need to use the 3D. If, if anything, all that does is that's going to add on to the ticket cost for people going to see it in 3D. Well, I think, and that's, I hate to say it, it still seems like such a money grab that, that I think they, you may find it released more 2D because it seems to be when they release a movie, it's, it's about three to one. If you want to see it in 2D, your, your choices are very limited, but it yeah, may you're be not more, you're it not may be more 50, yeah, 50, yeah. 50, yeah. And I don't mind seeing stuff on, that's why I saw Ant-Man in 3D only because I wanted to see it on IMAX. Yeah. So I had to see it in 3D. Now, I was surprised that the Mission Impossible, the new Mission Impossible movie is not in 3D. It's IMAX. They had it, well, they had an IMAX, but it was not released as a 3D movie. Uh, and, and again, you know, I mean, uh, what I'm finding, at least for me, is, you know, like now Ant-Man was definitely a different, a different one there because they had 3D effects all through Ant-Man that actually jumped out at you. Yeah. And that I noticed, but in a lot of the other 3D movies that that I've seen, um, Harry Potter's are a great example. Uh, I lose sight of the 3D within about 15, 20 minutes of the movie. It, it's it's no longer relevant. In fact, is the last Harry Potter movie so much took place at night that putting it in 3D was ridiculous because it just makes it that much darker because you lose about 25 percent of your brightness right to the 3D effect. That, you know, it really just made the movie hard to watch. I didn't really get to enjoy that movie until I saw it on uh, Blu-ray. I didn't see I didn't see the, the, the last two Potter films in 3D. I don't remember them even being in 3D. I'm sure they were, but I don't I didn't see them in 3D. Yeah. And then the other thing about 3D is that it, it has a tendency to put my wife to sleep. <laughs> is, is that she goes to see a movie in 2D. She's fine. Start watching a movie in 3D, and I'm sitting there nudging her about halfway through the movie, just because the the 3D effect it, it like does enough to your uh, to your eyes and your sensory input. It's like the the last couple Star Wars movies. Um, a lot of people found themselves falling asleep in the theaters because their minds are working too hard to to Keep resolve up. all the imagery of what's going on, all, yeah. all the stuff that Lucas is putting in the background. Wow. You think it had the opposite effect. It would overstimulate your mind, but instead your brain's kind of shutting down. Yeah. That's interesting. Yep. Well, speaking of brain shutting down, do you want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, Fantastic Four? We went and saw that a couple <laughs> weeks ago. <laughs> i tell you, I had a great day that day. I got to sit with some sit, sit and talk with some good people. Uh, you and your wife, uh, my wife and uh, Christopher, of course, uh, we all enjoyed uh, the time we spent with each other. And then my friend Mike Carlisle joined us, and uh, we all had a good day in that regard. It was the movie it was, on the other. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was good fun. It was good conversation. It was good food. It was not a good film. It was not. I, I'm not going to say I hated it because I think I didn't feel pa- I didn't feel enough passion about it to hate it. It was just. It was a huge disappointment. You know, the, there were people that were trying to compare it to the Ultimates, Fantastic Four, and I guess that's where they were pulling most of their inspiration. I 
I, I recall reading the ultimate fantastic four when it came out years ago, but there was nothing in there that stood out to me as any kind of imagery, anything that, that, that pulled from that. And I'm trying to figure out what, what really happened. I know that we're getting a lot of stories from, uh, the, you know, Josh Trank and then other people that's, that worked on the movie and none of it's flattering for anybody. There seems to be a lot of finger pointing after the fact of everybody. Nobody wants to take the blame yeah. for how and, this movie turned out. And Josh Trank had been on Kevin Smith's Batman on Batman, not talking about Batman at all, but talking about, you know, his life in the movies and how he got started and how he got Chronicle put out there and his friendship with Max Landis or frenemy state status with, with Max Landis and uh, just, you know, his background in motion picture production. And all that, and, and then him sitting there talking about the the substance of movies and everything, and I find myself wondering, okay, did did this guy record all this before he even made the movie? Because there's nothing of what he was talking about in those podcasts uh, in the movie. He 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 quotes that there's a, there was a lot of studio interference, and I don't know if there's what the truth, how much the amount of truth there is in that, but. That, that seems to be the go-to excuse whenever a director has a movie that doesn't perform well, that well, they blame the studio. We've heard that uh, the studio sent in someone else to do reshoots. Yes, yeah, supposedly to, Matt, Matthew Vaughn. Matthew Vaughn was, shot, is, is the name yeah. that's been tossed around. He's, he's denied it, though. Uh, the, the thing is, is that you can tell the first half of the movie's definitely got one feeling to it. And then the second half of the movie in the negative zone, wherever they're calling it, you know, it's just a completely different feel from it. And it's just like, okay, some, yeah, it's like someone else did all that. Well, it's, it's like they suddenly realized, oh, we're, gosh, we're in a superhero movie. We better have some action here. We better have some conflict. And I hated the Doctor Doom, every aspect of the Doctor Doom that they had in there. I just hated it. They, they have yet to get, the only thing I thought they did even remotely right was they, they, they got his level of arrogance just close to how it should be for Doom. Yeah. But they just cannot one, Doom does not need to have superpowers. That's yeah. is the great um failure. Well, that's a great failure, but that's I think has always been the great um oh, he's like a polar opposite of Reed. There that right. he is he's brilliant, but he's just a man. He doesn't have any superpowers. He's got his of course his armor. And they they always feel the need that he has to you know like he's like an evil uh, Tony Stark why can't they do that Tony Stark has no superpowers he has his suit and his right. brain that's yeah. what they need to do with Doom don't don't you don't have to give him superpowers he doesn't have to be oh and the and the the costume they gave him at the end and his his spacesuit oh that should say spoilers yeah. for Fantastic Four if somebody's gonna watch this <laughs> sorry. <laughs> look, look, they, they're happy to have you tell them this, okay? It's not a, it's not a spoiler in any way, form, or fashion. <laughs> but it's... The, the old, yeah. In our in our little... Uh, the show we did previously, the uh, the W, you know, the WTFF, what, what we hoped we would see in this movie, and we... Not only did we not see what we wanted, we it was just... It was just wrong. So many wrong decisions throughout the entire film. Characterizations yeah. were wrong. I thought Ben Grimm was wrong. Reed, oh, Reed was not right. This the uh, forgive me the actress who played Susan Storm, she barely registered 
on screen as a character. Yeah, she was invisible for the whole movie, and that yeah. wasn't a special effect. <laughs> no, she, she had yeah. no chemistry with anybody else. Uh, I think Jamie... Well, there but, wasn't any chemistry. There yeah. wasn't any chemistry at all. The only character that, that, was, that was compelling in any way was Franklin Richards, and that was simply his voice. Yeah, and that's... Because he had... And he's a fine actor, yeah. Resonant voice. He, yeah, and, and they used him to really, really good effect. But beyond that, they just missed on every single point. And yeah, that's not a movie that I'll ever go out of my way to watch again. Um, we're not going to do a commentary, no matter what anyone asks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's. Um, I, I am. When, if it ever hits the dollar theater, I am curious to go back, pay a buck to go see it, just to see if my original reaction is true to kind of reevaluate. I don't think my opinion is going to change, but it's it, the thing is, it's not like you went into the movie expecting one thing and got something else. No. I mean, that's exactly what happened, but there is not a framework for that other part that you can sit there and say that was good. Just, you've got to wipe out the misconception or whatever. Um, right. I sit there and I, I think back to the movie, um, uh, very bad things with John Favreau. And I went into that movie after having seen Swingers, expecting it to be something along those lines, expecting him to be someone that you can identify with. And I, I wound up hating him through the movie, just really, and just hating the movie by extension. But my friend made me sit down and watch it again, realizing that you don't like these guys. You don't like these guys and you wish very bad things upon them. And then I laughed my butt off during the entire movie. It was the funniest thing I'd seen. Sometimes you say, yeah, I... I was always similar with Die Hard too, of all things. Yeah. So going into it, I wanted it to be Die Hard, and it wasn't. So right. I was I was really resistant to it. And it's, it wasn't until years later, by watching it, you know, multiple times, that you know I, I understand now that it's actually a pretty good film. But no, I think um, I think anybody who who badmouthed the Tim Story movies could go back and at least though those movies seem to have a, a somewhat of a heart and he seemed to try to capture the feel the fantastic four and they definitely captured characterizations in in a big way both Johnny Storm and Ben Grimm right were were very very close to what they had in the books i mean it, you know it's funny did you ever read what the 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 comedy books on marvel yeah and John Byrne was trying to do the superb man story and he had the Fantastic Four come in. And every time the thing came up, the thing would say something, but it would just sound like something the thing would say. And Byrne had even put a note in there. I'm sorry, there's just not any way to write funny thing talk with it sounding, without it sounding like the real thing. Like the real, the real, yeah, the real yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I found that, uh, that same voice was in, uh, those Fantastic Four movies to, uh, you know, Michael Chiklis had that voice. He he knew how to talk like the thing. I agree. The the thing voice, which I'm assuming was Jamie Bell's voice when they, he was digitally created, and J yeah. I thought Jamie Bell was, you know, he's a he's a fine actor, and I think he was kind of wasted in this film. He didn't have much to do. Right. And his voice was, I mean, Chickless doing it on his own sounded uh, more appropriate than the voice they had for the um, thing in this film. Yeah. And I I've heard that. Um, now, where this is, I've heard two stories. One that they're still going ahead with a sequel. The other rumor I heard was that they were gonna they've canceled the sequel and they're taking that money and they're gonna use it to do a Deadpool two. Yeah, that's what I've heard. 
they they definitely canceled the sequel and given it to Deadpool two. Deadpool two, which that was the best part of the film was the Deadpool trailer. <laughs> yes, I I agree with that. That movie, it's not in the Marvel universe, but it looks like so much fun. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think we've beaten this dog to death. <laughs> Uh, maybe we, uh, is there anything else you want to, or do you want to go ahead and take a break and then come back and start with the book? Uh, we can take a break, but I just want to bring up, uh, for Mark Adams that we did, you, we, again, thank you for the recipe. We, we made the hobnobs and they were delicious. I took them to work and they were a big hit. So anybody else listening, please send in your recipes. We'll, we'll make them. We'll try them out. We'll let you know what we think about them on the show. As long as they include food in food, the recipes. Right, right. You know, yeah. <laughs> Uh, anything that, that requires feces or other things, we're, we're going to see. No, it. no. Please, food recipes only. Prefer, right. prefer, preferably dessert recipes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. All right. Well, I guess we'll take a break. Okay. Doing the new promo. Do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay. Go. Hello, darling. Nice to see you. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at twotruefreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, every Sunday at twotruefreaks.com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. And we're back. And now Brian is going to tell us a little bit about Captain America number 255. Yeah, this was a uh, cover dated March 1981. It was released December 9th, 1980. So this actually came out after Ronald Reagan was elected, but before he actually took office. Let's see. Editor. Yeah, editor is uh, Jim Shooter. Editor in chief, that is. Cover artist uh, was Frank Miller with inks by Joe Rubenstein. Very, very obvious on that and Rick Parker. The title is The Living Legend. Writers Roger Stern, pencilers John Byrne, inks Joe Rubenstein, but I'm going to put an asterisk by that, and we'll come back to that point later. The colorist is Bob Sharon, letterers Joe Rosen, editors Jim Salakrup, and Bob Budiansky. Now, uh, let's see our synopsis here. The story opens in June of 1941. At the White House, as President Franklin Delano Roosevelt is reviewing the file on Project Rebirth. Roosevelt himself narrates the story of how a young, impoverished Steve Rogers grew up in the Lower East Side of New York, just him and his mother trying to make ends meet in the Great Depression. His father died when he was just, as uh, just a child, and his mother died in his late teens. Now, Steve took a number of odd jobs to support himself, and he escaped reality by going to the movies. It was one of those movie visits where a newsreel ran that featured the Nazi war machine. This horrified Steve, and he was inspired to join the army. Of course, he's too thin and sickly to be accepted, and the doctors tell him that uh, he would have to do something else. Uh, now, Steve argued this point, saying he couldn't stay behind while others go off to do the fighting, 
And this is where General Phillips comes in and offers him a chance to do something for his country. Steve agrees, stating that he would do anything. Now Steve is taken to an old antique shop in Washington. Inside, they find a very old woman brandishing a handgun. Once the agents bring Steve identify themselves, the old woman takes off her disguise to reveal that she is a much younger woman. Steve is then taken past the fake storefront into the lab where he'll undergo his great transformation. There, he's introduced to a Dr. Reinstein. However, Steve recognizes him immediately as Dr. Abraham Erskine, the famous biochemist. Steve is subjected to a battery of tests while Dr. Erskine perfects his formula. Once they're ready, Steve is given an injection, a potion to drink, and then subjected to Vita Rays. Steve then begins his transformation, turning from a thin, sickly man into the highly muscled and fit man ready for service. Sadly, just as they find that Dr. Erskine's process is successful, Erskine himself is killed by a Nazi agent that had worked his way into the experiment as Special Agent Clemson. Steve immediately goes after the man and disarms him. Steve is so powerful that his one punch pushes the Nazi into some lab equipment. As the Nazi tries to get up, he grabs a hold of some high-voltage terminals, and is, uh, there's an explosion, and he is killed immediately. Unfortunately, with Erskine dead, the secret of the super soldier formula died with him. At this point of the story, the agent that brought President Roosevelt the files on Project Rebirth takes over the narrative and informs the president about Project Super Soldier, about how Steve Rogers was then taken in for special training so he could learn how to use his body to the fullest, how Rogers was taught by the finest instructors on various forms of physical combat as well as the finer points of military strategy and tactics, all supervised by General Phillips. It's at this point that Steve has shown that the Nazis have embraced a new symbol of their regime, the Red Skull. The Red Skull has become the embodiment of the evil that the Nazis stand for. So the United States needs to provide an opposite, a man who will be the living symbol of life and liberty. They provide Steve with a uniform and a shield. Days later, Captain America goes into action for the first time, preventing the Nazi spies from capturing a high-ranking officer. Next, Cap goes and stops a ring of Nazi spies in New York as they gather to discuss the new government super agent. As Cap is fighting them, when one man gets away, Cap follows him to a pile of scrap metal outside. Here, the Nazi hits Cap in the head with a loose pipe. This dislodges Cap's mask, just after he, and just after he pulls it back down, a news photographer takes his picture. Fortunately, the distraction doesn't stop Cap from taking the last Nazi down. Cap, Cap continues to fight against the covert Nazi presence in the U.S. It is at this point that Roosevelt asks to meet the good Captain. The agent brings Captain America to meet the President, who noticed that Cap's uniform has been updated so that the mask can no longer get knocked off. FDR then presents Cap with a new shield, a round one. That was part of a metallurgical accident that is apparently cannot be re reproduced. I'm going to restate that. <laughs> a new round one. That was part of a metallurgical accident that apparently cannot be reproduced. The shield appears to be indestructible and perfect to be used as a throwing weapon. All of this to prepare Cap for the next phase of his career. He is sent to boot camp as an inept private, Steve Rogers, cover ID so he can travel with the military covertly. From here we get a montage of the, the more notable points of Cap's career. Bucky's discovery of his identity and becoming Cap's partner, joining the invaders and fighting the Nazi regime, the enemies that they would encounter, the Red Skull, Baron Zemo, Baron Blood, and many others. We see the moment where Bucky apparently dies and Cap is thrown into the frozen ocean, only to be found decade later, decades later by the Avengers becoming one of the mainstays and greatest member of that team. The end of the story shows Cap sneaking back into Steve Rogers' modern-day apartment and reflecting on the job he does and whether it really is worth it. As he sits there, his television is playing the station sign-off, including the national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner.
it is enough. Enough to let Steve know that it really is worth it. The end. Now, great, great synopsis. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, now, this story, uh, this is interesting in that uh, they didn't, uh, they actually reproduced uh, the al- almost entire story, just the pencils. They didn't ink uh, most of this book, except for the very last page that was inked by uh, Joe Rubenstein. Now, page one there is uh, an homage, a recreation of the cover of Captain America Comics number one. And you see on the, the actual front cover, it shows Captain America Comics. And so that's ref- a reference to the 78-issue Golden and Atomic Age series. Now, normally the title is just referred to as Captain America, but it was always labeled Captain America Comics. I have to note here, though, you know, I've been reading comic books for, you know, since I was four years old. I had never heard of comics being referred to in any other age other than golden, silver, bronze, you know, like that. I'd right. never heard of the atomic age of comics. So I actually had to look that up and find that, you know, it was that age after World War II, but before the uh, silver age started, you know, basically when superheroes weren't written into comic books anymore, or at least for that period, I guess they were doing reprints. I know I think Superman was still being printed and Batman was still being printed, but you didn't see a whole lot of others. And I guess a lot of that was due to, uh, I guess, the falling off, not so much war, because uh, we know that uh, soldiers like to read comic books. I think Shazam was more popular during uh, the Korean conflict than Superman was. Yeah. was well, the, I think during the 50s, the horror comics became more prevalent and to a point yeah. where the Cap Caps um, magazine became like Cap's stories of horror, some it became basically became a horror story where he wasn't even in it. Oh, you mean you're talking about Tales of Suspense? No, not Tales of Suspense. Because that's what the Captain America. Well, yeah, I mean the Captain America series was actually for the first hundred issues, Tales of Suspense. Tales right, but of this suspense. is this yeah. is before this is even before okay. that. This was in yeah. the um, the fifties where it became and and somebody somebody covered it recently on Back to the Bends. It was a story where Cap battles Hitler in Hell over Cap's soul. Because <laughs> Hitler, because the Red Skull had written Cap's name in the book, and because it was written in the book, the devil had to go and and get Cap and drag him into hell. It's a very wacky '50s story wow. that I believe I can't remember. Either Bill, Bill, or maybe Hero covered. It. I think Bill covered it. Oh yeah, I'll have to go back to that. Now I did find that that John Byrne had stated at some point. Uh, that his run with Roger Stern was uh, supposed to eventually reveal that Cap and Wolverine had fought in World War II together. Which that is revealed later in X-Men. It's retconned yeah. that, that they knew each other, that, that Logan, as Logan, had fought with Cap during World War II. Yeah. Now, Byrne also wanted to dump the Red Skull's green jumpsuit and permanently replace it with the modified Gestapo outfit, like what you see in a hot move. And yeah. he also wanted to show his face for the first time, but he wasn't aware that there was already already a Golden Age story that did that. Oh, the the Red Skull's face? Yeah, the his original face before he put on the the skull. I don't I don't remember if it was yeah, it's like a yeah, that's right. He he, he wore a mask. It, it, he wore a mask, yeah, because yeah, in the later issues when the when the skull had apparently died, you know, he took off the mask and you saw him for you know who he was. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, there was one other thing here that I found, but I, I, won't, I won't bring it up until we actually get into the story itself as we're looking over here. You ready to go in and, and, and go over the pages? Yeah, let me ask you something real quick. Uh, well, two questions. One, did you yeah. read this as the digital or did you read the original? Uh, I've got the original. I'd read that years ago, but I read it digitally this time. Okay, because I'm reading my actual physical, physical copy 
you can hear right there. And I've I've read the digital because there's a there's a big difference between the original and the cleaned up version of the digital. Really? Um, <clears throat> tell me. Well, just mainly in the sharpness of the inks, and I'll get into that as we as we go into it. That I will say that I don't think this um, this book necessarily benefited from being produced directly from Burns pencils. I oh, think. on the on the the printed version. Yeah, and that maybe the printing process it's it looks a little muddy. Yeah, more muddy than than uh, and it, it may again it looks it looks better in the digital version because it is a little sharper, a little cleaner. Well, I, I, t- I tell you, it's funny when I was sitting there looking at the the digital copy, and uh, I was looking at it. You know, it, it made me think of when Kyle Baker had inked Burns pencils on that Avengers annual. Yeah, um, it, it just you know looking at it, you know at everything in there, it had that kind of I don't want to call it muddy or cloudy, but there's that softness to it. Um, now in the digital version, to me, it looks very appealing. Yeah, it, it looks it looks there's definitely a difference. And again, it may be yeah. just the printing process from 1981. What you know, the limits of what they could do, especially yeah. if, they're, if they're printing directly from his pencils. But I will say this: I think Byrne is one of the few artists that you could produce directly from their pencils because his pencils are usually very very tight. Yeah, that and doesn't detailed. need inking. Mm-hmm. Um, second question: He adds oh. his shadow and depth in definitely. Yeah. Second question is, who's your favorite cap artist? Oh no, I, I'm 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 always going to say it's Burn. Burn. Yeah, uh, I mean when when Burn draws Cap, you know that is Cap. Whether it was in Iron Fist or West Coast Avengers or Avengers or you know wherever he did it, you know the the way Cap was represented there, you're just like yeah, you know this is Captain America. My second favorite though is David Mazzucchelli, and if you read uh, Daredevil's Born Again. A uh, series that Frank Miller wrote, and Mazzuchelli did the pencils on that, uh, pencils and inks on that. Those are pretty good. I, that's about where I came in on uh, Daredevil. Yeah, and and I, I'll tell you this, uh, and I don't know if many people made the connection. I think that the way Cap was written in the Avengers by Joss Whedon was following the work that Frank Miller had done in that Daredevil series. The 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 very way he spoke, the very lines he spoke, it was just like that cap. The way that Frank Miller wrote him in uh, Born Again. Not to get those out again and reread. I haven't those have I haven't read those since they came out and off from the newsstand originally. Because I said that was just that's towards the end of Miller's run when he was no longer drawing but he was writing. That was right? his second. That was his second run as a writer on. Okay, the yeah, next, he that, that's when I came along. Yeah, he hadn't drawn it for a couple of years, and he came back and he did uh, like eight. Eight issues, uh, two two issues as a lead up, and then the the born again storyline that started with Apocalypse. Yeah, and then you know he was he was gone. I don't think he's done anything. Dare- oh yeah, he did. He did uh, Man Without Fear, the the retelling of the origin where he did Ramita, everything. Ramita Jr. Everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, as big a Burn fan as I am, I have to say that he is third on my list because my number one uh, cap artist is Mike Zek. Yeah, and, and I can understand that. I like I like Mike Zek's uh, pinups. I like his covers. Uh, but when he gets into regular day to day pencil work, I find that we lose some of the detail, and and that some of his action doesn't translate very well. But I like I like Mike Zek's work. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I, I like his covers more than anything. Right. It's uh, yeah, especially if you, and the one I'm thinking of is that iconic with Wolverine striking Cap Shield. Yeah, and you see all the Katang. sparks flying off of it. Yes, and then number number two, I have to say is Kirby, and I, I think that's only because I love the way Kirby draws Cap in action. It is so dynamic and so powerful. Do you know where I saw Kirby's Cap work first? 
Hmm. It was that old uh, uh, cartoon series where they they take the comic book and they they turn it into a motion comic. Oh yeah. But it was one they did in the late sixties, early seventies, mm-hmm. and it had that theme when Captain America throws his mighty shield. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, that song will be stuck in my head for the rest of my life. You know, that's that's one of those things. But <laughs> and that's where I first saw the Kirby work, and I just I, I love that, of course. Uh, and then I bought. Um, I remember after seeing that, I was at the bookstore and they had the digests of Captain America stories and I bought that and that was all Kirby stuff that was reprinted in a in a digest form. So it was real 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 compact and tight and so the pencils looked even more detailed than uh what you see on a regular page. Yeah. Well it's and, hard uh, it's hard it's hard to not beat Kirby when you're you're talking just dynamic action. It's it's he was such a master of that and some of it's physically impossible and it, yeah, it and, defies but, the laws of physics, but it just oh it just looks so good. Yeah, and, and the thing is if if you know anything about Burns career is that his career is built almost entirely as an homage to Jack Kirby. Oh, yeah. I know he loved he'd, Kirby. He made it almost a goal to sit there and work on every single title that Kirby worked on. And that's why we got, you know, the odd stuff. That's why we got Blood of the Demon. That's why we got OMAC, you know. You know, Byrne Burn had been able to touch everything. Now, of course, he's not doing any work for Marvel or DC uh, these days, he's just doing the IDW stuff, and it, it does look like with the current regimes that he won't be working with either. I of don't them. see. Yeah, uh, that's a shame. I don't, but I don't see him. I don't see anything getting him to return to the big two. And that's the sad. That's the sad thing here. You know, looking at at what happened here when they were uh, doing this run on Captain America, this wasn't supposed to be the last issue. Uh, I mean, they had just finished what a nine issue run so far. And they had uh, had this was supposed to be part one of a three part storyline dealing with the Red Skull. Uh, now there's there's conflicting stories. Uh, Burn's side of this basically said that Jim Shooter had mandated that all books had to be singular issue stories resolving the story at the end of the issue. You could have continuing storylines, but each each issue had to be a story unto itself. So more like episodic, could, more like episodic TV. Yeah, so anybody could pick up an issue, read it from beginning to end. They didn't have to sit there and worry about what happened before or what happened after. That's what editor's notes are for. Yeah, but that's – that's and, and so when Byrne put down this edict, he said Roger Stern couldn't do that with the storylines that they had planned. So Roger quit, and in an act of solidarity, Byrne quit as well because they offered him the writing job as well as the art job after Roger Stern left. Now, what Roger Stern says, though – is that it was a little different than that. And I'm trying to remember here that, but uh, Roger Stern said that it was more a uh, discourse between him and Jim Salakrup, uh, not so much Jim Shooter, and that, you know, in the stories that they were telling and that they got a, got into a disagreement. So Roger Stern himself left the book. And so, again, burned in solidarity. But, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that, they had a nine-issue run that, you know, even today people look back and say, wow, that's great stuff. That's what I'm saying. That's, just for, for such a short run, it's very highly regarded. And it's de- – yeah, it's definitive. And when you look at the Captain America origin, this takes everything that people have done over the years in, into account. You know, we've heard stories where it was an injection. We've heard stories where he drinks a potion. We've heard stories where he gets hit with the rays. And this distills all of them down into one cohesive story where it's – you know, he, he does all three. It, this is really a combination of Tales of Suspense 63 and Captain America 109. Yeah. It looks like that's where, especially the artwork, those are the two that Byrne was drawing his, because there are some pages that are almost verbatim, especially dialogue and art that he's well, taking yeah, directly Well, yeah, and that, and that was all two. Kirby stuff too, wasn't it? They were both Kirby, yeah. They were both Kirby. 
right. And they're well, both written by Stan Lee, I think. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. Are you sure? Tales of Cement, I think, is Stan Lee. And I, I looked that up. I thought they were both Lee and Kirby. I'm, okay, I'm okay. Because sure. I'm sitting there thinking back to the Golden Age uh, origin of Cap, you know, before right. Stan Lee got involved. I mean, Stan Lee wrote a lot of the Captain America stories even in the Golden Age. Yeah. But the actual original story was, wasn't it uh, Kirby and Sam Simon? Joe, did uh, not Sam Simon, Joe Simon. Joe Simon, excuse Joe me. Simon. Yeah, my bad. I've never read any of the Golden Age Cap. I don't have any of them digitally or otherwise. I've never read... I think I'm going to start digging for those just to see how how they how they measure up because you know I've never looked at never looked at the older 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 Kirby Golden Age stuff. I've only looked yeah. at the Silver Age stuff. There, were you aware that there is a actual prose book put out in '68 called "The Great Gold Steal" by Ted White? That's a Captain America. I've never heard of that. They apparently Marvel tried to break into the 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 written novel with there's one called that came before this called Avengers and the Earth Stealers. And then this followed it, and that's supposedly where the first time the name Erskine was used. So this Ted White is maligned for changing the name, but it's not true because actually it had been used. Tales of Spence calls him Erskine. Mm -hmm. Cap 109 calls him Joseph Reinstein, which is why in this story it's it's both. He's Erskine, but he's using Reinstein as a cover as a cover name. So yeah, so I'd be interested to read that. He's apparently a much more of a in that book. He's much more of a a soldier. He's a little more hardened, a little more, uh, I'm going to say bitter, but he's a little more hardened, a little more of a, of a career soldier yeah. than the cap, the little more optimistic cap we have in the story here. So it'd be interesting. Uh, they're, you can get them on eBay, but they're a little pricey. I bet. I bet. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get into this here. Okay. As we look at the front cover, um, shows it had a 50 cent cover price. Nice big comic code authority, uh, approval seal there and the actual cover kind of looks like a, a war bonds poster doesn't it it does it's frank miller frank miller and rubenstein art i don't know what it is about rubenstein i i, I whenever i see anything he's done it's, it's obvious that rubenstein's doing the inking on it but for some reason even though there's not really well i guess with those with those uh stylistic planes or whatever they are there's that orange, and there's always a preponderance of orange when when Rubenstein seems to do the inks, and I don't understand that. I I don't think it's a, an actual thing with orange. It's just for some reason my mind thinks orange. Not yeah, not I mean, even I, I don't know what it is. Just something about his lines. I will tell you, I am not really uh, wild about this cover. I I wish Byrne had done the cover. I don't. I'll come right out and say I'm I'm not thrilled with it at all. I think I think they could have done. Which wasn't done in the day, but if they did it, if they were trying to homage the World War II kind of propaganda posters, yeah, have a nice painted cover. Now I know at that this day in, in comics publication that wasn't normally done, but as you said, the planes the planes don't work. They're too geometric. Uh, they yeah, get too stylized. Yeah, a cap's positioning at the bottom where he's punching what looks like snidely whiplash or. <laughs> dastardly uh something he's he's i, I was thinking dracula i was thinking dracula there <laughs> well now that you say it, it looks like he's punching dracula dracula in a nazi outfit yeah cap's body is the the anatomy just doesn't work it looks but like he's is, dislocating his shoulder as he's punching yeah but this is frank miller in 1980 and that's i mean it, it, it's just and if if you remember at the, at the same time that he did this he did a, a story in marvel fanfare that Rubenstein inked, and I think Roger McKenzie actually did the story. And, uh, you know, it just, it was a, 
a, it was supposed to be a fill-in story for this right here, and that's one of the reasons why Roger Stern um, got got upset with Jim Salakrup because by putting in the fill-in story, it uh, one of the things that they did back then is if, if a, a writer-artist team or, or, or someone was working on a book and they maintained a run of six issues or more, they started getting a bonus. Right. And because of the way that they wanted to do things, well, Salakrup wanted to put in the fill-in issue of the Frank Miller story. Uh, you know, that's where, that's where a point of contention came between the two of them and Roger Stern ultimately walked away from the book. So it, again, that was, that was where that Captain America story came in. That's where this artwork, I guess, you know, they got him to do this at the same time he was doing the Cap story. But I, yeah. I like that Cap story. And, and I don't, I don't have as much of a problem with the artwork as you do here. Cause you know, I mean, it's Frank Miller and I understand that he has never been one to, to go for what I would call realism. You know, people call his work gritty, but I'd never call it realistic. True, but I don't think this is even can even say it's it's gritty. I just I just don't like it. I I, I wish it, it. I really wish Byrne had, had covered this, or they had taken a different approach to it. Right, right. But I think by the time Byrne had done the pencils on the book itself, everything had gone down, and he probably had walked away with Stern, and so they went ahead and got Miller to do the cover. Well, do you, it's probably the case, but I could be wrong. Yeah, and I haven't. I mean, you said you've done a little more. You found a little more research in this than I have. Is there a reason why they produced it from the pencils in the back? They claim that it's not a fill-in issue. It wasn't. Um, well, this was supposed to be a fortieth, fortieth anniversary special. I mean, it was just basically something special they did. They thought the pencils were so special that they they they, they did that. Well, I mean, I mean it, it, it's great. I mean, you wouldn't know. I mean, if you to look at it, you wouldn't know that it wasn't inked. Right. Really. But then that's, I'm saying that, and that's, uh, certainly due to how tight and how good Burns pencils are. But I, I just, it just, maybe they were just experimenting. Maybe it was, there was something they were trying to do to see how it would look, you know, or if it wasn't a case of, well, he's already left, but surely even if he left and his pencils were finished, he could find somebody to pencil it. They, I mean, they, to ink it, they certainly, uh, got, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it was a time constraint. I, I think it was simply, the pencils were good enough to do it that way. It was a special issue. Let's go ahead and give it a special treatment. Yeah. It yeah, almost could have been. Well, again, they wouldn't have done it back then either, but they could have released it as, you know, like you see an Ashcan issue. A lot of times it's just yeah. pencils, but they look like pencils and it's black and white. I mean, uh, if you go into the first page here and you look at it, think about the, think about this. He did it in pencils, and yet he took the time to sit there and draw the shadow underneath Cap. Now it's covered up by the uh, the editor's note there of, of uh, you know Roger Stern writer John Byrne artist and right. all that yeah but still it's uh, you, you know he he took the time to sit there and draw that kind of uh, shading in, in in there right if you see I mean yeah if you see Burns pencils they are they're they really don't need inking they're they're that tr- I mean inking just brings it out makes them look nicer but yeah uh, he does do incredibly tight pencils and maybe yeah. he going into it he knew that. Yeah, because it doesn't now, look sketchy at all. It doesn't look. It looks very precise. Yeah. Now this this uh, first page in here, of course, is the reproduction of the cover of the first issue of Captain America comics, where where Cap is punching out Hitler. Of punching course, Hitler. Yeah. We, we got to see that in the in the Captain America movie. Uh, and how many times did he say he did it? Two hundred times. Two hundred. I can't remember. But. <laughs> yeah, and he's got that great uh, you know triangular shield. And then, of course, they've got – he's got added into it the red skull on a TV screen. Did they actually have TV screens in, in, in the 40s? They I mean, did. I know that TV, TV had been developed, but 
Ooh, that's that's tough. Again, the Red Skull had it in the in the first Avenger movie. He did have TV monitors and such. Yeah, this I've, from looking at the I've looked at the original uh, cover, and this is other uh, they're looking at a, a TV screen, but the Red Skull is not on it because mm. I guess the Red Skull I don't know if the Red Skull even shows up in issue one or not. That's just burned. But other than that, it's it's a very faithful recreation, even down to the uh, bent bars as Cap. I'm assuming has burst through the window. Does the original cover have the two soldiers behind him shooting him almost from mm-hmm. behind but missing? Yeah. Okay, because it's like and if you don't you don't see the if you don't see the trail marks of the bullet, it almost looks like those two guys are getting him shot in the back. Shooting him in the back, which <laughs> yeah, you think they would be? They wouldn't be missing him, but he's just moving too fast. Yeah, and in fact, on the because uh, if you look behind Hitler, there's a map that says USA. I yeah. think in the original cover, it actually has maps, but they say. Uh, U.S. invasion or something. It's something similar to that about yeah. uh, get their their war plans. And even down to, which I thought in this was odd, that Hitler looks like he's, of course he may be, he's getting his jaw dislocated the way Cap's punching him. Yeah. And he looks that way in the original cover. He's got a very, uh, like almost like an extended jaw. Yeah, and, you know, again, I'd say John Byrne has a tendency to draw Hitler as jowly. Yeah. but uh, But, yeah. I can see that. We saw that in our last, the, in our, our in OMAC, OMAC coverage. Yeah. yeah, OMAC, he drew me as kind of a very portly Hitler. Yeah. And, of course, we we also notice here that they do give credit uh, on the, at the top here that created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, something that in the 80s did not happen a whole lot with a lot of books. I, I know that Superman had the Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster put in there, but that was almost a legal mandate, wasn't it? That's at the yeah, I think so. That was I know that was always a fight from DC, when you're DC now, and um, and uh, the Schuster the Schuster Simon the Schuster Siegel yeah family. yeah and then the Batman by Bob Kane you know they 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 Bob Kane had gotten that arranged in there himself I do believe yeah and that, uh, I don't know much about that story but you hear that all the time that that Bob Kane really didn't uh, it was Bill Finger who created Batman and Bob Kane basically I mean that that story is worse than. The uh, the stuff you hear about how Stan Lee basically has hogged all the glory for Marvel and kind of cut Kirby out of it, which I'm not going to – I don't want to stir up a hornet's nest. I get a little sick of that, of the kind of Stan Lee bashing, but um, – Yeah. Now, you, 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 the thing is I'm always going to give Stan Lee credit for for doing what he did. You know, I mean the thing is he did create a lot of this stuff. He did think up a lot of this stuff, you know, and, and Stan gave us, you know, some great stories – Jack Kirby gave us some great stories, but you look at uh, Spider-Man, and you know that Stanley worked with Ditko. Stanley worked with Ramita. Yeah. But and and we give Ditko as much credit as we possibly can. We give Ramita a lot of credit, but Stanley is in there. He is writing some of that stuff. It's right. like Claremont is writing the X-Men. You know, um, <laughs> and there's you know a lot of you know. Well, what did the artist you know? How, how much did the artist have his input? And Byrne has talked about his input with Claremont over the years. But, you know, the, the thing is you've got to give those guys their credit. Now, as far as Bob Kane goes, we've heard stories back and forth about Bob Kane doing this and that and about what Bill Finger did. And Bill Finger never raising his voice to say, hey, I deserve this or whatever. And he had so many opportunities, yet he didn't. And I, I never understood that. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't like Bob Kane was sitting there saying, I'm going to rub you out if you sit there and try to. <laughs> take my glory i don't know how that works i mean i think it was a different it was a different time when uh, during the 40s 50s and even 60s when these guys are just they're just working class stiffs that, that just happen to be comic artists that's no different right. than the guy that goes and you know puts an engine in a car at a, at a factory that's and just what these they guys do. did not 
And these guys did not realize that they were creating the modern day mythology. Right. That was just their job. That was just what they did. Now, yeah. the thing with, with Lee and uh, Kirby, I see them as kind of Linda McCartney, that when you put them together, they created something that was bigger than both of them. But, Didn't we say that about Burning Claremont? Uh, a, a couple ish, a couple stories ago. Yeah, I think I think that's yeah. going to be anytime you get two two guys that collaborate, it's going to be uh, Lennon and McCartney. Yeah. What I dislike is they they it almost swings the other way where they instead of saying well yeah they created both were equally important, they say well Stanley didn't do anything, you know he just wrote it a little bit he just took took the pages that Kirby did he filled in some words so that it's like he contributed nothing and it was all Kirby. So it's like, well, let's find a medium here where we can credit yeah, both and, these guys. To, to take that Beatles analogy even further, I mean, what most people don't sit there and consider with the Beatles is that every song that was written in the time that they were working together as the Beatles had the names Lennon and McCartney put on there. But Lennon wrote some in his own. Paul wrote some on his own. But they always put both names on there. That, yeah, that was some weird thing they had between them two were – I think I've heard recently that McCartney was trying to have Lennon's name removed off certain songs that – no, I may be wrong on this, so forgive me. But he was trying to have Lennon's name removed off songs that he wrote strictly by himself. And, it, you know, I, I think that's – yeah, that's crazy. The, you let it go so long, you, uh, it's let almost it, yeah. like you need to leave let, it. Let it go, let it go. Well, it's, it's odd that I was – last weekend I went to the Weird Al concert. Because I'm a big Weird Al fan, and yeah. he has been trying to get McCartney to let him record Chicken Pot Pie as a parody of Live and Let Die, and apparently McCartney keeps rejecting him. And I, from what I understand, legally Weird Al can do he can record the parody. He doesn't have it's to a parody. Have yeah, I know permission, and- but that's just his kind of uh, his own code of ethics that he won't record something unless the the artist gives him permission. To do it. Well, so, didn't Coolio not not want him to do Amish Paradise? See, that's I, the that's that's the story you hear that that Coolio he did it without his permission. The story from Weird Al is that his people told him he had commission he had permission. Apparently, he didn't. But as his as Weird Al's manager has said, Coolio's never sued him. He certainly never really he made that big stink kind of at one of the award shows, but he's never taken any legal action against him. Yeah, because it, if anything, it's helped him more than right, hurt him. Right. That's like what what Nirvana said when he, when he did the Smells Like Teen Spirit. It was uh, they said, "Hey, wow, Weird Al's doing a parody yeah. of us. We've arrived." Right. Yeah. The only two the only two artists I know that are, that have continually rejected him, other than McCartney, I know Celine Dion. He went he wanted to do one for the song in Titanic, and apparently Prince has always rejected him. But that's that's Prince. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. So that's right, a shame. Well. I'd like to hear chicken pot pie. <laughs> so would I. <laughs> All right. So moving on, uh, let's go to page two here. Oh, I'm going the wrong way. And we see the White House. We see this agent talking to FDR. And the fine detail on the desk, just, you know, that it's stuff like that that always blows me away. Because you look at that desk and, oh, you're looking at the printed version, so I don't know how it looks there, but you can tell that Burns gone in and done his little um it's it's a detail for something that looks really cool in the comic page but never could exist in real life right i'm looking at, yeah i'm looking at i'm looking at both i'm kind of comparing i'm looking at digital and i'm looking at the actual physical yeah and i will say this about burn burn has always been 
great at capturing a likeness of someone without it looking photo referenced. Yep. That looks like FDR, but it doesn't look like he took a picture and kind of copied it. Yeah. He's good at doing yeah. ca- it's like a, it's almost like doing a caricature. You you pick up the the characteristics of someone's face that make them who they are. Burn is very good at doing that without it looking too uh I hate when something looks too overly photo referenced. Yeah. And you look at the 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 shots down at the bottom of young Steve Rogers and his mother and it makes me think of uh, it's sad that this is what it makes me think. Of. It makes me think of uh, the scene out of Johnny Dangerously, where uh, his mother is doing all the laundry and everything during the Depression. <laughs> but the clothing, though, you know, again, he nails the clothing, uh, the period there with those the the long socks and the knickers. The knickers. Yeah, Burns always been good at clothing. He's always usually us- us- his clothing. I've said this before. His clothing is usually up to date and current, and he always does a good job of uh, even drawing. On the next page, we see Steve in that suit that is kind of falling off of him. Yeah, but hold on a second here. I, I, I do have a question, though. At the bottom of page two, on the, the bottom right panel, there's a little boy running along with a stick. And there's a, a truck or a car, old-timey, right beside him. Yeah. What is that behind the truck? It's like a circular thing. What is that's that? That's a hoop. That's the no. That's the kid is is playing with that hoop and stick. Haven't you ever seen that? Oh, okay. The kids pushing the. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. The, yeah, the hoop and stick. You know, it's just I I couldn't tell the perspective there because right. it looks like it's behind the truck, but it's actually the kid playing with the hoop. Okay, yeah. that's a good catch there. Good yeah, that's catch. a that's a that's a depression era video game. You went out and you played with a hoop. Yep. Yep. Uh, and is that a girl or a boy on the steps above? That's a girl, isn't it? With that little bow coming. It's off either of a her. bow or or a kerchief. I can't tell. It. it yeah. I can't tell if it's uh, what that is. I don't. But and and this is a place where the pencils don't necessarily look as good. Where her face, her head, really looks undefined. It looks yeah, it does look a little. She has no neck. It's not connected. But, yeah. And and then the and you can kind of see on the the shadow. It looks like the shadow of that wrought iron that's right next to Steve as he's sitting down there either drawing or reading. Yeah. That looks that that does look a little pencil. That that would be cleaner. And cleaned up if somebody went through and inked it. I'm assuming those are that's shadows. It looks like shadows. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't even notice that. All right, and on to the next page. More Johnny dangerously laundry doing. Uh, <laughs> apparently, all they own. Mother died. All they own are whites. I mean, apparently, it's all they're watching yes, are whites. Every, every, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and he went to see the Seahawk with Errol Flynn at the Bijou Theater. Yes, I didn't get catch it as being Bijou. Yeah. Now, in that picture, you, where you see young Steve, where he's walking away and he's thinking about how terrible the Nazis are, I really don't yeah. like the way he's drawn Steve. He looks like a young Ath- Agatha Harkness. He doesn't look like Steve Rogers or even a <laughs> a frail, skinny young man. He looks like a young old woman. Yeah, I know, I, and that was that was my my thought looking at that shot. You know, it's like, and and this is one of those those things where. I mean, you look at the rest of the shots of him on the on the page. Uh, you know, down left, he looks like Johnny Storm. Yeah, that's definitely a, a, yeah. I could you know, and considering and, and, the Fantastic Four is right around the corner from this, he he really didn't draw an emaciated man. He drew a small, muscular man. That's my note. He that he does not his his frail Steve Rogers looks fit. In some cases, looks very fit. He's not. Uh, he should look. This guy should look almost skeletal. Yeah. Now, did you try to read the eye exam? I did not. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, 
I think it got down to the third line and it looks like Bacta, but uh, <laughs> I don't think they knew about Star Wars back then. <laughs> now, the detail on the newsreel shot, though, that's pretty cool. I mean, that's that's good. Yeah, that looks like a real newsreel shot, you know, from from the 40s. And then uh, we get this typical burn thing where someone comes up behind is talking to someone and they've just got their head turned to the side a little bit. And yet they're able to see and talk to the person. Well, I think that's uh, you have to kind of and they read that yeah. as he's turned his head around. Yeah. Uh, if they done it, if they if they just done if he just done a little motion circle there, you know, a half circle, but with a head right. looks like he's making a head turn. I think it would have would have worked a little bit better for right. you know, at least for me. Just yeah, some kind of little motion line to show that he's kind of startled. Yeah. Now the the cars. I'm looking. Uh, yeah, of course, the, I love the cars from the 40s. I'm just trying to figure out what kind of car that is that they uh, are driving up to the antique shop in. It's a 1940-something. Yeah. And then the old lady looks like Aunt May with a uh, handgun there. (laughs) She does. She takes off the mask, and it looks like Jean Grey with black hair. It it could be Jean Grey. It could be the Wasp. It could be Scarlet Witch. It could be... Yeah, yeah. For some reason, it sticks out to me more as Jean Grey than anybody. Jean Grey with black hair. And the way he's drawn this image is out of one of the books, I can't tell you which, that Kirby drew that, that you kind of see that half mask. It's kind of a Mission Impossible peel reveal yes. where she's peeling off. So that that looks a little awkward where she's peeling it off. But I think that because he's he's aping that panel from the Kirby book to look like she's kind of peeling that, that uh, mask away. Yeah. Now, what, what this made me think, you know, by doing that, did Kirby – okay, Kirby used the girl too. Did, they, did the girl ever come back? Because they've got her in one panel here, but I mean, was she intended to come back as like a romantic interest or something? I don't know. I, th- I think she was just there as a. Uh, my question is, why does she have to? It's just an antique store. Why does she have to look like an old woman? Why can't she be a young woman running an antique store? Well, it, again, that's that's my, that's my thing. It's it's the the J. Michael Straczynski gun on the wall concept, and that is basically if you tell a story and there's a gun that's like put up on the wall or something. You're going to make sure that gun gets used before yeah, the end of the story. This Chekhov's gun. So this is yeah. Chekhov's girl. Right, right, and that's and that's a, a, what, what you know. I'm seeing here. You know, it's like they, they've got her. Was she relevant to the story later in the in the Kirby stories? You know, see, I want to go back now and, and look at all the the Golden Age to, stuff yeah, just I've, to see. If, I haven't read. I haven't read any Golden Age stuff. But I love this. I love the Kirby tech here in the middle. That's and that panel is almost exactly out of the. Uh, the previous Kirby ones, the incomplete with the guy. That looks like a very burn designed suit the guy's wearing, but that's, yes. that suits exactly the way it is. And the, um, the only difference is if you look in the back, that's very burn. That's very, uh, much burn tech with all the lines and the panels that are behind that guy. Yeah. Now in the bottom left panel where Steve Rogers is sitting there and he's recognizing the, the professor Erskine. It's funny because it almost looks like the big head was Photoshopped on the tiny body. Yeah, I think again that's to try and make him look a little more yeah. emaciated or just frail. Yeah, and and Erskine, uh, the, the rep, no way he's going to get this reference at all. But this, the way he draws Erskine, looks just like a guy I used to work with named Bob Hall. Uh, I was thinking Sergio Aragon's, or you know, the guy that drew from Mad Magazine. Uh, looks like that. <laughs> Could be Stalin too. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, but I like the montage of the the physical and all the stuff that they put him through on the next page. You know, it looks like they really got you know put, putting him through the paces and everything. That you'd almost expect to see him on a treadmill, you know. Yeah, but look how fit he looks in that panel where he's got the whatever yeah. he's hooked up to. He looks 
that's very it's a very fit body. That's not uh it's not somebody not who's not emaciated. No. Yeah. And this differs from the the other two origins in that he in their stories he came right in. They're like, okay, drink it. We're gonna make you Captain America right now. And this they're testing more like the movie. They're testing him to see if he's if he's gonna survive this thing. Yeah, and now and, and this is where they show the agent Clemson. Now, that's actually the name of the guy in the movie that wound up shooting Erskine. Okay, so I didn't catch that. Yeah. And then of course the next panel you've got Steve Rod. Now he actually looks kind of emaciated there just based on the way he's sitting. On the table he looks good. That's yeah. not bad, but yeah. It's just very inconsistent throughout the uh, throughout the whole issue until he's cuz he looks he looks a little better in the, on the cross the page when he's first being hit by the Vita rays and he's you've got all those action lines kind of speed lines going out behind him. He looks pretty pretty skinny there until he starts, you know, bulking up into Captain America, but yeah. But you, and you can almost hear that dum, da, 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 dum, yeah. Dum. yeah. When you see him all uh all built up like Cap. Well, on that on the top on the uh it's page 7, but anyway, the top page where he's just he's he's saying, you know, you've got to sit down here, I'm going to shoot you with the Vita rays. The machine yeah. above that looks like it's crackling with Kirby crackle. That looks like yep. the machine from Amazing Fantasy 15, the one that, that the spider came down between. It looked like that was two yeah. orbs that shot the the radiation between it. Uh-huh. Cool. You know, it's, it's funny. That just at the, the last panel, the previous page, the you know Erskine's handing him the formula. He says, you must drink this quickly before the chemicals lose their potency. I hear that every time in my head when I'm taking Airborne or Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I just find that ironic. It's got nothing to do with this. It's like, uh, it's like, it's like Nestle quick. Drink this quick for it settles. <laughs> oh, man. I forgot about that. Stern drink, stern drink, stern drink. But yeah, all the Kirby crackle around Steve as he's going through his transformation is really cool. That's a, that's a good, that's, yeah, that's a nice scene. But once again, it, it leads to question, how do the pants still fit? It's like the Hulk. How did the pants still fit? Well, everything was cotton back then. So everything, it, it, it was either cotton or wool. So it, it expanded yeah. a little bit. It wasn't like he was in polyester. Yeah, true, true, true. But it does look like now his next- his pants are, well, no, they're the same way. It looks like his pants are, the zipper's about to come loose. But, but I don't think it had look, a zipper. It was all buttons. It does look, it looks like, yeah, they wouldn't. They look almost like, uh, like Minuteman pants or something from the 1800s. Those kind of, that would button up the side. Yeah. But you'd have like a, a, a belt pull in and everything right. would sag over. Almost. Right, yeah. right. That's what it looks like. Yeah. Now, the next page, boy, Erskine's had a couple sandwiches since the last time we saw him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he looks like he's gained some weight. And the guy Clemson that, that's getting ready to pull his gun, doesn't he look like Hitler? It looks a little bit like Hitler. He, there, he looks a, a little bit like the guy in the front cover. So maybe that's supposed to be it. Yeah. Except the, in the front cover, his mustache is ridiculously long. Yeah. He looks kind of like a uh, kind of an aged, aged uh, Tony Stark. Now the yeah. panel above where Erskine is is where you say is put on a few admiring how uh, how big and strong Steve is. That looks like it was inked by Klaus Janssen, doesn't it? I know it wasn't, but it's yeah, kind of a Klaus Janssen kind of ink to it. Yeah, definitely with the with the, the all the shading in there on the muscles and all the shading in there on on. Uh, Erskine's clothes and his hair, especially. Yeah. But when you've got that black white hair, I mean, basically supposed to be a shiny black. It, uh, yeah, definitely adds to that. 
Yeah, Clint, now, uh, Jansen's always, to me, looked like he inks a lot with a, a pen instead of a, a brush. So that's why his, yeah. his stuff has always looked that way to me. Now, I think that there was definitely a miscommunication between Byrne and Stern on the next part here. As Cap is fighting the, the Nazi, you know, um, he punches him and you see him go into all that equipment and a lot of curvy crackle around like an explosion or whatever. And the guy's got a gun in one hand and he's got nothing in the other, but it's open. All right. Right. Then we go to the next panel on the next page. He's buried in the equipment. He's dead. But what the story says here is knocked into the Vitaray devices, electrical omniverter power source by Roger's punch. He scrambled to free himself. And in doing so, he grabbed hold of the omniverter's high voltage terminals and was instantly electrocuted. That was a little, I thought that was a little overly expositional. That they... Well, I remember in the Kirby story, you know, as, as, as Clemson's trying to get away, Cap says, watch out, you're going to, you're running into the Omniverter. And the guy runs into it and boom, he's dead. So I, I know they were trying to use that in there, but at the same time, it was, you know, it's it, like I said, it, it just seemed like, you know, Byrne drew one thing and Stern wrote something else. Well, I, I think in the two stories, and they, they brought this up when I kind of read up on the background of this, of this story, in one story, Cap knocks the guy into the machinery and that kills him. And another story, I think the one you referenced that the, the guy kills himself by trying to free himself from all the machinery. So they looked like they went out of their way to explain that Cap didn't kill this guy. He just, although if you look at the, the one panel, it looks like the guy is being thrown into a, a vat of searing energy. So I don't see how he can not be killed, but yeah, it looks like the, exactly. looks like everything, yeah. looks like everything in the room fell on top of him. Yeah. Hair went flying up, and the next page he's just buried under yeah. smoking rubble. <laughs> and you know when you when you get electrocuted by something, nothing else catches fire or smokes. It's just you, usually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, um, in the, the, these next panels below, when you see FDR talking to the agent, doesn't the agent look a little bit like Bill Bixby, especially in the right panel? I can see that. A young, a young Bill Bixby there. And then, of course, they show Captain America going through his physical training and everything, his martial arts training. And then um, the general, I guess, looking a lot like the stranger, except his mustache is not as big <laughs> and he's not wearing crazy punk clothing, uh, is, is uh, giving him strategic and, and uh, military training while he wears a checkered sweater vest. That's a very Peter Parker vest. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's what I, I like about this, that because you – but sure, the, the, the formula heightened Cap to the peak of human perfection, but yeah. where did he become such a brilliant military strategist? And this least, exactly. this explains that, well, and it does say that his his intelligence was raised too, so he's become, I guess, the peak, you know, his IQ has gone up. But at least this explains that he was an instantly a uh, military genius, that he had to learn some of this. Right. Right. And then, uh, of course, that's when they introduce him to the Red Skull. And you can see the Red Skull's wearing the green jumpsuit in that shot. I like the green jumpsuit. It used to be a green jumpsuit with just a little swastika on the front of it, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. No mention of Hydra, of course. No, no, that's, that's that comes much later. Yeah, and, and they give Cap his uniform, and apparently the general has got a changing shade in his room, <laughs> in his office. <laughs> So you can change clothes. I didn't notice that when I first read it, that you see Cap's hands over this, yeah. this the changing panel that he's back there, basically stripping down and putting his costume on. I still 
have not seen a good representation. I know in First Avenger that he was just basically wearing a glorified sweater, sweatshirt, you know, for the Captain America uh, tunic or outfit right. there. I still have not seen a good representation of that chainmail top. I would love to see it because it's always looked cool in, in the comic books. It always looks cool in the artwork. Well, the odd thing is when that up until recently when they would draw, they would draw it the way Burns drawn it here, where yeah. it looks like it's scaled, but yeah. you weren't quite sure what it was. And it wasn't until later when they would, when artists would draw it in much more detail, that you actually see it as little little scale platelets that show that it's a chainmail, you know, suit, you know, outfit he's got on. But this is yeah. just the way they would just draw it, almost like this is drawn the same way as if they were drawing, say, a a, a guy that was a that was reptilian or something. They would draw that to represent scales on his skin, and this just right. represents. But that always made the the costume, you know, that always that made the costume. It just made it look really, really cool. Yeah, and you'll never probably ever see that chainmail because now it's just all high tech uh, fabric, Kevlar, and, Kevlar <laughs> yeah. and and whatever else Tony Stark has come up with that you're not going to see anything, which would be, uh, and I can understand from a, from the from the film when they did the first one that from a, a production standpoint it was easier just to do in a back then they would just do a, a like you said a heavy sweater or a sweatshirt. Yeah. Well, when uh, when they had him doing the shows with the USO or whatever it was in the movie, yeah, it was yeah. basically a heavy sweater for sure. Of course, they got the boots down right with the swash, swashbuckler, uh, whatever you want to call those. The, yes, yeah, I guess that's a uh, yeah, the swashbuckler type pants. Yeah, those are definitely Errol Flynn type pants or, or boots, but which I kind of miss. I kind of understand the the way they've got his boots now in the film, where it basically looks like combat boots just laced up. But I kind of miss this, uh, that kind of look. I mean, again, but this is a look that if you translated it to the actual silver screen, it would look maybe look a little silly. Yeah. But it looks great in the comic, but sometimes stuff like that doesn't work in the film. Yeah. Now, I think this next page is what inspired them to just print the penciled pages. The level of detail on everything and everyone in this. Especially the Nazi that, that turns around and says, yes, that noise, no. what? That yeah. is that's a great burn kind of ugly man type face. Yes, and just everything in there. I mean, you see all that activity in the background. Once again, a beautiful vehicle, <laughs> <laughs> the trees and everything that's that's there above them as as, as Cap is comes comes riding in on the motorcycle. Dang, it does. A, it's got a good sense of it being twilight or near dark or dark. Yeah, uh, I, and this is very cinematic too. Yeah, except. I didn't really notice it, but when, but he's got his background is is kind of a, a lavender color to give it a twilight look. Mm-hmm. But then when he's fighting the guy at the bottom panel where he's just kind of doing that, he's smacking him across the face, and the next one where the guy's shooting at his uh, shield, that's got a light blue background to make it seem more, more daylight. I wonder why. I, I don't know that. I don't know that when they do that that they. You know, I mean, I think the lavender definitely supposed to represent night, but a lot of times when they do the back colors in uh, combat situations, they just want to give it a color that's going to contrast to everything else. Right, and I understand that you've got your, yeah. your your main figures have to f- figure up, and that's what these dark black, these really black silhouettes of the trees that re- that represents uh, more of a twilight look too. Now, did you catch the Kirby slash Batman pose there? In the third panel on that page. When he's whacking all the guys. He's got, you know, one foot down, one foot up and a kick, both fists, you know, going to either side. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you if you read a lot of the older Batman books or if you even look at uh, some of Bernie Wrightson's work, 
you'll see Batman doing that pose a lot. But I know Kirby does that pose as well. Did, did Kirby, is Kirby ever drawn Batman? Oh, I'm sure he's had to. But, uh, you know, I can't think of nothing comes out, comes to mind right away. Yeah, I've, I've but, read precious little of any Kirby DC work. Yeah, because most of what you think of is either New Gods or, you know, some of what he did in Superman. But they always yeah. redrew the face. But he had to, I mean, at least for superpowers. Oh, yeah, I see I see some Batman uh, done by Kirby and not pretty. Uh-oh. Not pretty, but, uh, boy, his Captain Marvel looks good. Oh, I bet, I'm sure he drew probably. Now, why did they... Why did they draw read when he was drawing Superman? Why did they redraw his face? They didn't like the way he did. Yeah, uh, his his face did not look like what they were seeing as Superman in the style guides. Oh. So they would redraw it, and uh, Kirby was never happy about it. Oh yeah, I imagine you can find a lot of that out there. Yeah, his Batman um, did not look good, uh, but that's just you know probably it looks like most of them are quick shots. You know, yeah. there's one. There's one thing they did where he uh, that was a he did a fan commission of Captain America fighting Batman, but it's a back shot of Batman, and so you don't really get a good idea good what his face looks like. like. That stuff I'd like to explore more to read some of his New Gods, uh, some of the the OMAC book I've got, which I need to finish reading. Um, I'm enjoying, and just some more of his kind of wild, far out cosmic stuff he did when he went over to DC. Uh, yeah. I've been trying to collect. Commandy, I've got a few issues of it, but they're hard to find. And I've never read Commandy. The only Commandy I've seen was in Crisis on the Infinite Earths. It's there's not a big difference between it's just Commandy and uh, Omac. I think a lot of the designs for you know he did all the I think the character designs for Thunder the Barbarian, you know the cartoon. Yes, I think that owes a lot to his work on Commandy. Oh man, I love Thunder. I, I would love to see a modern day take on that. Though I'm sure Disney would sue them for infringement with the uh, Sun Sword, you know. True. Oh yeah. <laughs> how that how that made it through? I don't know. I guess they weren't they weren't paying too well. Yeah, because I think Thundar is 78, 79 yeah. around that time. Yeah. Okay. Now, of course, uh, Caps he's still using the triangular shield at this point. I'll tell you, you know, comic book uh, sound effects. Always, you know, get me, you know, because I sit there and I, I try to, you know, use them within the framework of the story. And I don't know, I, I'm assuming Byrne is putting these actually in rather than the letterer. But like the machine guns going, butta, 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 <laughs> always gets me. Uh, he throws a shield and like, makes an audible whiz sound. Then and whap. then, he, yeah, whap when he hits the guy. <laughs> Well, these these sound effects do seem a little throwbacky. They seem a little more Batman kind of throwbacky. Right? Wump, maybe the big wump when uh, yeah. he body dives into that guy with the shield. Yeah, maybe yeah. a little Silver Agey, you know, and the crash with a K when he goes through the window. And I have to say, in this next page where he's saluting the uh, the Colonel, yeah, and he does this again on a, on a following page. I'll bring it up. I really hate that grin that Byrne puts on Cap's face. That is such a, I think it's meant to be a, a, a golly gee whiz kind of more. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, if you were to take the, the, the cat mask off and put black hair on it, that would be Christopher Reeve. That's, yeah. that's, that's like the Gary Frank effect almost, but that's what that makes me think of. It makes me think cause, cause you get that little turn up on the, on his the left side of his mouth, if mm -hmm. you're lo looking from his perspective, his left side, it's got that turn up. It's just like it's like Christopher Reeve. 
it's yeah, it seemed a little. I'm happy to be Captain America. I've just started out, kind of. I haven't become kind of jaded yet. I'm I'm excited about doing this job. He's very, yeah, you know, he's exactly. very uh, eager and gung ho. So it's a little G. Williger's kind of a grin. It's worse when on a, ne- on a next page, I didn't really like. I just, I just, man, it just threw me out of the whole thing. It's like, oh, I don't, I don't like. I don't understand why he's putting it in there, but I didn't like it. Now wait, on the next page. Is it not the next page? It's um, it's after he has, he's fixed. It's right at the end before he's fixing to go talk to the president again. Okay, well, the, uh, before we get to that, yeah, we haven't got there yet. I'll, I'll tell yeah, you when we get there. Definitely some interesting things. Now, of course, he smashes in on this other Nazi spy ring and gets into the big fight there. And I love the smack to the guy's face. Oh yeah, you in, can the, see in the middle panel. Yeah, you can see him kind of crushing the guys. Yeah, that's Thomas being yeah. cinematic. And then the three Ben Grimm's come running in with the machine gun, with the Tommy guns. <laughs> <laughs> I call him Ben Grimm's because it looks like Ben Grimm in the coat, the coat and hat. Yeah, so, except smaller. Yeah, and uh, of course, you know, not a secret Nazi spy ring can't ha- go anywhere without having the Nazi flag hanging down. You know, for everybody to see. Well, I guess you could say they're not being very secret about it, but. Uh, yeah. Well, the, even the panel above it, where he's punching the guy, bop, and he's smashing the guy with the with the shield, wham! I love the expression on the guy's face. He's just getting this uppercut right to the chin. Yeah. Cap's not even looking at him. Cap's just whacking him without looking, and he's he's too busy hitting the guy with the shield. Yeah, and I guess the same guy gets hit by the chair. Yeah, that guy gets whacked the by the chair <laughs> by his buddy. No, there's some great action in this, and like when he's sitting there and he. he uh, down at the bottom, he throws the one guy off his back, and then he goes over to the other one. That yeah. always makes me think of Wolverine from X Men One Thirty Three, and it's sad that I know the actual issue number. But yeah, <laughs> when uh, Wolverine's going up against the Hellfire Club security, security guys, yeah, when he's fixing yeah. to, uh, and he cuts all them up pretty good. And he's going to cut them to ribbons. Yeah, because that—that's actually my first. Uh, that was one of my first burn experiences where I actually recognized burn. You know, those pencils beyond, or that artwork beyond. Uh, other comic book yeah. artists. And so as a completely tangent from that, I'll bring us back. Yeah. That it where he's where he basically fights those guys in the basement where he's where he's it's that that follow up issue where he's been trying to drown him in the sewer and he comes back and basically he says, you know, I'm okay, you wanna play it that way, I'm gonna I'm gonna play it hardball too. And he kinda cuts you know, he cuts these guys up and, and I love that line where he says, I'm only you know, yeah, I know what you're thinking. You've got a gun and you're 15 feet away or whatever. Says, but the Wolverine cover, you know, 15 feet's nothing for the Wolverine. Basically, tell him, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rip you guys up. Yeah. Well, that's referenced later in New Mutants graphic novel because he, it's Sunfire goes up against these guys, and now they are cyborgs. They've got cybernetic yeah. implants, and he says, "Well, a while back we were this mutant Wolverine cut us to shreds, and now we've been basically repaired and made better." So I thought that was a nice callback to. Yeah, and then they actually come back in, I think it was X-Men 202, 203. It was a Barry Windsor Smith story. Yeah. And they are working with Lady Deathstrike. And they've even been enhanced further, apparently. But uh, that was one of those crazy, crazy issues. But, boy, that's uh, yeah, that's a, that's a story for another day. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're definitely going to cover those X-Men, I'd say, sometime in the future. I think that's it's important that we do. Oh, I think we can. We, we have to. It's just we want to kind of get some of this more obscure stuff. Yeah. Get it out now. All right. Now, so moving on to the next page, you know, burn drawing rubble there at the top of the page in the, in the scrapyard. You know, he's chasing that guy. There's people outside the fence. The guy panicked and runs, he keeps running into the scrapyard. 
grabs the pipe and hits Cap on the face, knocking his mask off. And then who is that taking a picture of Cap? It's a member of the press, I guess. That right there. And now it's funny because half the people say that's J. Jonah Jameson. Oh. The other half say it's Walter Jameson. His father? Now, yeah, he's not his father. Uh, but Walter Jameson was the editor at the Daily Bugle uh, in the 40s. And he had a flat top haircut. He had the almost, uh, they, they don't necessarily show it here as like the Hitler, what Hitler wore. What do they call that? I forget. But um, that mustache, but that's that he was the guy that Jonah used him as a role model, Walter Jameson. Now, if you read Marvel's, the Kurt Busiek, Alex Ross story, mm-hmm. Jameson was a reporter, whatever, back in the 40s. And he went over to uh, Germany during World War II. Now, this right here is not Germany, though. This no, is in the U.S. It's in the U.S. But, um, you know, th- so the age time, you know, I guess, you know, that could be a young Jonah. But more likely, it was probably Walter Jameson. I can see it being Jonah, and I, I can see that fitting in better than than Walter. But I never made that connection. But that's a that's a good point. I, th- but in, in the 80s, it works. In, in 1980, it works with it being Jonah. Right. Because you get the idea of Jonah being somewhere in his 60s or whatever. So that could be him, you know, 40 years before as a cub reporter trying to make a name for himself and, you know, and doing that. Also, you know, but you could also say it's Walter Jameson because Walter Jameson was prevalent in the comic books in the Golden Age and later years. Now, is that the main character in Marvels? No, the main character is Phil Sheldon. Okay. I couldn't remember. Phil Sheldon was was a contemporary of Jonah and they were friends. So, again, you know, it's one of those things where, you, you know, uh, you, you can look at it and it could be either J. Jameson or Walter Jameson. You, you, you just got to make that decision yourself because they did not say definitively it's one or the other. No. They didn't probably about, say that. They probably said about 85% of the people are going to say it's Jonah, though. Well, I think people, most people want to make that connection. And that is a, more, a little more personal connection, uh, if it's, especially since Cap is such a hero to Jonah. And that's how he kind of sees his son following in the same footsteps, his uh, his son, the astronaut, following in the same footsteps as a hero. You know, he sees Cap as a hero. He doesn't see Spider-Man as a hero. So that would yeah. make more sense for that being Jonah. Yeah. I thought the, the, the little reveal that he gets his, you know, they went to a lot of trouble to explain why he modified his costume. Yeah. And that just seems, it kind of seems unnecessary. People change their costumes all the time. It's always going to get upgraded, but but this was in the age where you had to explain everything. Yeah, and it fits in. It fits in with the uh, the the with the photographer. Yeah, taking a shot. I mean, I think he's more you know because he's more worried about his identity here. But yeah. yep. Now the panel that's right above that in the middle, middle left, where he's approaching the guy and the guy's just grabbing the pipe. Yeah, that one, especially in the even this digital version, especially my printed version, that looks very muddy. Cap looks that the 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 blacks are yeah. very thick, but he looks so Kirby like there, doesn't he? Yeah, except with the eyes, the eyes almost glow. Yeah, the it's eyes almost don't, like he's yeah. getting ready to use heat vision there. Isn't yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's almost like that Batman look, you know, where the white eyes, you know, and yeah. the mask, that kind of look. Yeah, it's funny, but you know, with this costume the way it is, and and the the chainmail having that definitive ring around the, the, the neck so it doesn't even come up to the neck. And so you, you, you see all that skin. It makes Cap look always – if you look at any of the shots of him leading up to this where they're showing that angle, it makes Cap almost look evil uh-huh. or angry. 
Yeah. Cause I, I noticed that with the motorcycle shots or when he was sitting there fighting those guys, whenever you saw the skin around his neck and, and cap straight on, it made him look evil. So it makes sense that they would, they would close that up. Yeah. It just makes more sense. It protects his neck. You know, just, it just, it just difference between the way a costume is drawn in the forties and the way a costume is drawn in the sixties. Yeah. Now this, uh, the Grumman plant, uh, fight where he's, he's fighting those guys. That moves really, really quick, but I like the detail of the upper shot, even though it's like almost all black. Oh, you know, you the, see the FD, planes you in see silhouette? F- yeah, the planes in silhouette. Of course, FDR and left in silhouette, and that's a great shot of him. It's almost like a picture. Yeah, because you can definitely tell that's who that is. Yeah, there, there's there's definitely no doubt. And then Cap swinging in off that hook, the pulley. That's a great shot. His- Bam, wood. <laughs> <laughs> wood. That's an uh, wood. That is. <laughs> I think it'd be more of a whoop. Yeah, that guy got some wood there. <laughs> okay. And then Cap goes into the Liberty. Is that SWA? What is that? Shipyard? I think it's shipyards. Yeah, that's very muddy. Yeah. And the car looks very muddy. That car looks like uh, from Batman Year One with David Mazzuchelli art. That's what that looks like. Yeah. And then, of course, there's a shadow scaring the guys you know, a la Batman. Yeah, that's a nice That's a nice effect with the... With the- I actually think they could have made the shadow darker. Instead of having it that blue, he could have played, and Burn can certainly yeah. do that. Burn is, is kind of a master of doing light. He could have certainly made it darker. You could have almost made it black and had the guys still not in silhouette. You wouldn't have to black them out, I don't think, and it would still look as nice. It would still look as dynamic. Is that pale, that kind of pale, pale shadow looks? It, yeah, I agree. It yeah. could be. It could be. He could have it's done funny because it, it makes those guys down below look like Frank Miller characters out of Daredevil. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the guy's got the riding cap on, and, that, yeah. and that's what does it. The riding cap and coat makes the guy look like he's out of something from Daredevil because he liked to use that a lot. I just don't see a lot of people wearing riding caps anymore. No. They no. shouldn't wear them a lot in comic books. No. Well, it's the same with hats. Nobody wears I mean, that, that hat and trench coat is the is the go-to Marvel uh, disguise. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be amongst the people. I wear, wear a hat and a coat. And uh, uh, the shot there, Boulder Dan, that's pretty authentic, both uh, the outer shot and the inner shot, aren't they? That those probably I bet those are referenced. I bet he that especially that middle shot of Boulder Dam. Maybe he looked at a photo and just kind of didn't try. I'm not saying he's traced yeah. it, but I think he's probably redrew it. Same with probably the the one at the bottom. He probably looked at it. But Burns always been good at drawing machinery. Yeah, that's uh, really really good. I love the guy in the middle bottom where Cap's kicking him. He's getting a big wham. The guy looks like he's being kicked in a very tender spot. Yeah, uh, I, I, I love that it, scene. Love it looks like he's thing. being carried away in Spider Man <laughs> in Amazing Fantasy 15. Yeah, he does. Yeah. You can almost see the cable on him that they would erase out digitally <laughs> later. As yeah. Pulling him away from the scene as Cap kicks him. And then the guy in the purple and green, is that like Lex Luthor's little brother? That's, I don't know who that is. And and the, 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 the shoulder on his shirt, I guess Cap is holding that. He's pulling it, yeah. He's pulling it. He's pulling it, okay, because that, that looks funny. And then the other guy's just laid out on the ground. Yeah. That could be the Green Goblin, too, if it's purple and green. Now, is the guy laid out on the ground? Is he, is he wearing a hat or? That's his hair, I think. Yeah, because for a moment there, I thought he's African American. No, because you know, he's got a white hand. Yeah, it's uh, just. It's I think weird. he just. I think he just will have brown hair, and you can't see his face. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I get. I get the perspective uh. now. Okay. And for some reason, Cap looks old in that last uh, panel. That's the panel on top of that grin. I don't like that. Yeah. No. Uh, that. It, yeah. It makes him look old. Yeah, I don't like that expression. 
and the jaw is way too big. That's <laughs> almost like a John Walker jaw, that's, you know? That's too lantern jaw. Yeah. But then the next page we see him in his, his you know, modern uniform, the one he wore for so many years. Yeah. And uh, he gets the new shield. And that's a common pose there where he's where he's holding the shield, putting, putting it on his arm. Bottom right where you see FDR kind of in the, in the foreground. Does he not look like Bob Hope? Yeah, uh, so there, <laughs> the the cigarette on the on the uh, what do they call that? I don't know. The uh, cigarette holder, cigarette it's holder. A real long one, and it it makes me think, you know, like he's the guy from Monopoly that wants to take all your money, <laughs> you know? Because yeah. yeah, they keep they they put it in his mouth, they take it out, and they put it back, and okay. I think it's just the the profile he's done. He doesn't have the, the Bob Hope nose, but it's just the, it's the receding hairline and the chin. And that grin, it just, first thing I thought I saw was, oh, that's Bob Hope. Well, the angles make the glasses look funny, too. Yeah, he's not drawing the, yeah, he hasn't drawn the uh, glasses right. Yeah. And then the next page, that's all out of Kirby, isn't it? The, all the stuff at the Army base with the... That's, yeah, Hyder that's Rogers. almost exactly, but that, when, he, when he put in the, the when he's put, planting his gun and he's smashing his uh, sergeant on the foot. Now, did you really think any of this was necessary to have in the story, the, the Private Rogers bit and being the inept soldier and, and all that. I don't think so. I think they just wanted to include that to flesh out more of the two stories they were pulling from. Because that's from, I can't, again, remember which one. It's either from Tales of Suspense or it's from 109. I think it's from 109. Yeah, and without the secret identity, they couldn't do the Bucky story. At right. Least, you know, not not back right. then. They, they, and, you know, you sit there and you think about this Bucky. You know, he's got to be like 15 or something like that. And there's no way that they would let someone like that go into combat with Cap. Well, I don't uh, know why he would hang around. They explain that his father, in one story they say his father was killed in action. Yeah. I think in this one they explain that his father was killed in uh, boot camp, I think. So that they kind of adopted him, and he's been kind of the, the Well, In, the in this page, he's wearing a uniform the whole time, like he's a soldier. Yeah, I think that maybe just that they let me play dress up, that, you know, the kid's got... You know, they're going to give the kid something to wear. They, obviously, they don't seem to care that he's on that he's on base, and he works for him because at one point, well, it's not here. Yeah, oh, I'm well, too- he comes up and tells he comes up and tells Sarge that Colonel Feeney is looking for him. Yep. So obviously, he's you know they're not shooting him away; they're letting him stay on uh, stay on, on base, base and kind of yeah. helping out. Now, I love the little cloud in the Sarge's thought balloon as he's walking away from Steve. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's something you don't see. Well, thought balloons alone you don't see anymore. Yeah, true, yeah. true. And then the next page is such a great splash page. Yeah. Double page but spread. I, I, wish, I wish they, you know, had done more. I, I wanted to see, like, the first meeting with the Red Skull, you know, instead of you know instead of all this. But, you know, I, I guess they, they only wanted to do it so many pages. They could have easily made this. They could have easily done this as two pages they could, uh, yeah. or four pages. Okay, yeah. and so you've had this page and you flip it over again and you see another one. I, I mean, we saw four or five different combat scenes with Cap when they really could have done, you know, the first meeting with the Red Skull or or whatever. Yeah. And, th- and, and, and they only touch on, you know, Bucky discovering who Cap is. And we know that he sees him in this costume and he says, well, there's only one thing he can do. you got to make me your partner. <laughs> and I'm like, where do you get that from? <laughs> but... Well, he basically you know, blackmails him. Yeah. And there's the invaders, which is all pretty cool. Union Jack. Yeah. Is, is she, was she Spitfire? Spit. F- 
Spitfire, yes. The, Spitfire, the, yeah. Namor, and the original Human Torch. Which is odd that because this is kind of this is the ending run of the Stern, and in, in that one he dealt with Baron Blood, he dealt with yeah, the Jack. Yeah. So some of this is being pulled from the the, the run we just we are just now finishing up. Yeah, I didn't recognize the the two villains at the bottom of the page. I don't know the Red Skull, and I think I think that that Burn brought them back in Namor for a uh, a story arc in there, and I'm gonna have to go back and look at that. Are they twins? Weren't there two twins in the yeah, in the Nemo run that were the Ferris twins? Is that right or no? No, no, that's not right. I don't remember. The Ferris twins remember. are from I, X Men, I, I think. I, I do know that they 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 had the twins that that, that that came up from from the Nazis and that the right. invaders got back together, or at least a version of the invaders got back together in Namor for that. Yeah, that could be. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back into Namor and reading his run. I haven't read it since it first came out. Yeah. And then we move. I mean, I love the the shot of the Avengers here. Never could get enough of Burn draw, drawing Giant Man or a Giant Man of some type. You know, uh, the the and I'd like I'd like it to be later Burn, not early Burn, because I like the the mid '80s Burn would have been the one the one I want to see drawing Giant Man. Yeah, because the early Burn when he did uh, Giant Man or uh, I guess they called him Black Giant Man or Black Goliath. Black in, Goliath. In Champions. You didn't get enough of it. To, I mean, you know, he drew great perspective. And I love that. I just I just want to see more of that. That is the last of the penciled only pages. You yeah. go to the next one and it is. It's inked. Yeah. Inked by Rubenstein. And it's just a, a simple nine, pa- nine panel uh, page. And, you know, no real action. Just him sneaking into his apartment, taking off his uniform, turning on the TV and. You know, recognizing that the job is still worth it. That he's always, you know, he's having to go and do his, which he later became a comic artist. I remember that in, in the stories, but he was a basic commercial artist. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And for any kids of a certain age listening to this, there was a time when your TV station actually stopped signed broadcasting. Off. <laughs> signed yeah. off. You didn't have TV 24-7. Yeah, we, we actually still have channels that, that do that. And what they do now is they run... I mean, some of them will do infomercials, but you'll get one that'll sit there and run the national anthem uh, over and over and over. No, I didn't or know the, that. The, 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 yeah, I mean, it's like it'll be like like public television stations or local. Like if you had any stations that were on the UHF bands before, the, you know, now of course everybody's digital, but yeah, you know, the the local stations, you know, may still do that unless they sell the time for infomercials. But infomercials are getting a little crazy now. Because, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that's being getting thrown into litigation. So you're going to see a lot less of the infomercials because there's too many lies going out there right now. We don't have TV, so I, my access to commercials is very limited. But, you know, this was a time where you get the national anthem, then you would get static. You would mm-hmm. get snow until probably 6 or 6.30 the next day when probably a kitty show or something would come on. Yeah. And or, see, I was going to say you don't get snow anymore, but you actually do. I have uh, in my. It's funny. It's in my bathroom. I have a an old, uh, twenty five inch TV. It's not a. It's not a high definition TV, and I use it basically to run off the signal that comes to my uh, my main TV in my bedroom. And if I shut off the cable box to that, boom, I get snow. Yes, no. Yep. No blue screen. I, I guess I could program it to put the blue screen up, but it it by. You know, by default, puts up snow. So, you know, they can still see that in some cases. 
Well, that's that's something else that you that's that's becoming a thing of the past too. Is an actual cathode ray tube, an actual tube television. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you can't. That, I, don't think you can now, I don't think you can find those anymore. You can't buy them anywhere. Uh, no, I don't think you can. Um, now, going back to this, so uh, you've got the the printed copy there. Were there any uh, cool, uh, a, you know, ads or anything? We do have, uh, well, one, there's a, and I'll just bring this up because I always love reading this. In the middle of the book, there's an co- uh, ad for Mile High Comics. Oh, yeah. And at this time, you could have bought an Avengers number five, volume one, number five, 30 bucks. 30 bucks, wow. 30 bucks. You could have bought, yeah, Fantastic Four number 48 for Silver Surfer, 10 bucks. Um, where's Spider-Man? And now I hear some X-Men that are cool. X-Men number six, 25 bucks. X-Men, Giants, okay, here we go. Giant size X-Men number one, $60. Wow. Yeah, that's like, ooh, that's uh, amazing. That kills me. Now, uh, I was sitting there looking, I, I, I didn't mention this earlier, uh, looking at the the books that Byrne had done this month. And he'd only done the two. He'd only done uh, the Captain America book. And the X-Men issue of the day. Now, that X-Men issue is 143. Days of Future Past, is, isn't it? No, that's Demon. That's where Kitty Pride goes up against the the Nagari Demon. Um, Days of Future Past had happened the, the issue before. This is actually Burns' last issue of X-Men that he's doing and his last issue of Cap. So he goes to completely different books uh, after this. Well, this is right around very close to him coming, taking over Fantastic Four. Yeah, uh, let me see here. So March... Yeah, he did The Living Legend, and he did Demon. And then in April of 81, he did What If? What If Captain America Were Elected President? But I think he just did the – he must have just done a cover for that because that was based off the, the story where uh, – 250, um, right? Yeah, where, where, where people were talking about him running for president. president. He said, no, no. And then he did, um, let's see, Marvel 2-in-1, number 75 in May. He was not doing any regular books until July of till July of eighty one, and that's when he did Fantastic Four two thirty two, Back to Basics, which is a very common theme with John Byrne, coming to a new book, Back to Basics. Take it back. Take it back to more of its should, roots. What you want it to be. I mean, at least what I wanted it to be. But you know, after that, he would be doing you know Fantastic Four, and then he would be jumping around to other books, Marvel superheroes. Uh, he did a spectacular Spider-Man fill-in story. That the Ringer? Yeah, the Ringer. Yeah. Uh, but he was doing Marvel superheroes, and I'm not familiar with uh, familiar with it by because it just says the name, you know, the the title and the number Marvel superheroes. Let me see about this here because I'm wondering if that's just covers if he actually did the actual book. So it's easy to find out. Some for the the listeners can help out, or maybe you can. There's a there is an ad in the book. There's a hostess. There is a hostess cupcake ad where the torch is fighting. It's a woman with a souped-up hair dryer and big frizzed-out hair. It looks like Sal Basima art. Is there any? Is there a reference anywhere you can find out who did the art for these hostess ads? I know there's a page out there, and um, I haven't looked it up yet. Um, I'm looking up this, and it looks like that Byrne was doing. Byrne and David Michelinie were doing a, a series of Avengers stories uh, in this. Marvel superheroes book, and it looks—I guess it was a reprint. Reprint or something? It was a British reprint. So, if that's the case, it was called Death on the Hudson, 
from Avengers number 184. Okay, so yeah, that's uh, that is a, uh, a reprint from the the Burn book. So he was only doing one book at the time for a while there, and that's just a reprint. Hmm. Can't, Can't be, be that busy every month, and I guess no. he was uh, you know taking his break before he uh, jumped into FF. Well, I mean, he, oh, that's right. He was he was sitting there trying to to farm out to DC at the time. Because in uh, late 81 or early 82, he, d- he was doing The Untold Legend of the Batman. And um, then he, uh, I guess, did that Star-Lord one-shot that he and Michael Golden and others worked on that Chris Claremont wrote. Did you ever read that, Star-Lord? I've never read any Star-Lord. It was Star-Lord, the special edition. And it had a cover and like a, a two-page spread by Mike Golden. And then Byrne did the rest of the art in the book, and it was really, really beautiful, really good. And it's a, it's like a one-shot. It was printed on a, a thicker-type paper. It wasn't prestige format because it was before those came out. And it almost it was almost like magazine size, if I remember right. Oh, I'm, no, I'm not, and not familiar with that at not, all. It's not the, the Jason Peter Quill that we know from the movie. It's Guardians the original the Star-Lord, right? But, but it is you know him by that name, and you actually get to see his father as well. And uh, I believe Terry Austin did the inks, so it's really, really gorgeous. And uh, but yeah, you know, next up, of course, in his career was the Fantastic Four. Uh, I think he did he did some other what if, what if stuff too. But uh, this is actually one of the slower slower parts of his career when he was probably in the most demand. True. Yep. All right. Well, uh, I think we've beat most of it to death. Uh, now you you talked about the hostess ads. What's but, funny about uh, the hostess ad is the, the the antagonist is a woman with red hair, and this is for uh, Dave Elliott on the uh, Fantastic Forecast. He's always making a ding, but Johnny's always had a thing for redheads. So <laughs> and he's so he's kind of you know he defeats her by feeding her hostess cupcakes, but he also says there's a hot number like you shouldn't drop her weapon for anything, not even hostess cupcakes, because he drops her big hair dryer and he grabs her and I guess takes her off to jail or I'm assuming it's jail. I hope it's jail. No, I I, uh, I was looking to see if maybe John Byrne had drawn any Twinkies or Hostess ads. <clears throat> On Byrne Robotics, someone had posted a page where it was a Hulk. And all these guys, you know, when they do the Hostess ads, they try to do them generically enough so it doesn't necessarily look like their work. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what this is. This one is signed by Roger Stern, but the artwork does look like it could be Byrne. I'll, I'll send you the link there so you can look at that. Yeah, there's got to be a, p- a page out there that lists who does all the who did all the ads on all of them. Um, it's like uh, the Dungeons and Dragons ads. Do you remember those? Yeah, those are kind of like Plug. Is that well, it's actually. Um, oh my gosh, I knew the guy's name. I um, he did Elementals, um, but uh, yeah, the guy. Uh, now when they did the very first one, um, Dungeons and Dragons ad, it was done very. Uh, very stick figurey, so it wasn't someone that was ne- necessarily a comic book artist. And then Bill Willingham, uh, in in his early days, actually did the, the the rest of the ads, and they've got them all collected out there on the web, so you can read all of them in succession because it's a continual story. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I always like that. There's also a house ad for Dazzler by Defalco and Romita Jr. coming up. Uh, yeah, and you heard what they did with the Dazzler stuff, didn't you? Mm-mm. At the, I think it was the convention that you went to with the guys. Uh, they were going to see. Um, they thought John Romita Jr. was going to be oh, there. Oh, oh, oh! Yeah, they all had. Um, they all had they Dazzler all had number one. Of Dazzler one. 
and they got the was it the anchor to to sign them all? I think they weren't when because Ramita was there on Sunday and we nobody went to, back Sunday except uh, my wife and I and Jay David we went back Sunday, but uh, I never got in line to see Ramita because the line was too long. Yeah, I, I met John Ramita Jr. once when uh, it was in '87 or '88. I had gotten a, I've got a Meerschaum pipe of Superman uh, made when I was living over in Turkey, and uh, I'd, I'd actually brought in uh, John Byrne Superman artwork as examples for them to use. Pipe carvers don't use photo reference at all because <laughs> it doesn't look anything like anything Byrne did. In fact, it looks uh, more like a super boy with a little bit too much effeminate uh, look about him, more of a Peter Pan type figure. And on the cape, it's got two rings attaching the cape to the to the suit. The S looks really good, and you know he's got the musculature pretty good, and the hair is super curly, like a boy from the old Tarzan shows. But still, it's a very unique piece. Nobody else has got like this. Take shots of that if you haven't already, and need to post those on Facebook so we can. Yeah, see I I did once before. I took one shot before and put it up uh, for Michael Bailey. I'll I'll just sit there and uh, see if I can find that and repost that. Do you not meet uh, Ramita was in town maybe three years ago. Yeah, in Irving doing a convention, and I that's when he was because he was doing a he had done a Fantastic Four poster, so got him to sign that, and I. He wasn't supposed to sign anything else, but I, I had, I have a, a hammer. I, I made a manoner that I made myself, and I brought that. I said, yeah. hey, "Will you sign this?" And he goes, "Oh." He kind of thought, "Well," and he went ahead and signed it for me anyway. So that was cool. And, oh, well, that's cool. That's cool. I'm glad, glad to see he was cool to you. He, he wasn't that that cool to me. He was just kind of. I mean, he was just mocking the pipe because it, you know, he thought it should look different. But you know, then again, I, I've never seen him carve volcanic ash. So that's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you got anything else on this? No, I think uh, I think we covered. It. The only thing I will say is, I've read this. The I've read the stories com- leading up to this, their original run. This is their last yeah. issue, and based on those, which I enjoyed much more, especially the Baron Blood. This was a little. I know it's a retelling of his origin. It was a departure. It's a little lackluster. It's a little. It, it's not a. It's not going out on a high note. I mean, the artwork's great, but yeah, compared to the other stories that they were telling, you do you do get a sense that oh, I wish they'd stayed in the book because the look of the stories we could have got. Yeah, it's a bummer, and I would like to see where they would have gone, but you know, and he's. Ha- I mean, granted, Stern is hampered by having to tell retell something that's already told, so it's not. He's not coming up with an original idea. He's having to kind of fill in all little cracks and stuff. Yeah, right. but the one thing you can't miss is that Stern definitely captured the essence of Captain America. Yeah, I agree and there. He captured in a way that, that I don't even think Mark Grunewald captured. And Mark Grunewald had that incredibly long run on the book that uh, everybody just loves. Yeah. And I liked it. I didn't love it because I didn't feel that uh, he just didn't. It wasn't my cap. You know, this was my cap. And it's a very short run. So I'm always trying to find something to match up to it. Now, I like the. You know the Silver Age stuff that, that that you know I saw and I read, and I like what's uh, what's what's done more in Avengers and other stuff like that. And I still love um, in Secret Wars, the first one, when they first get together on the planet and uh, they're trying to decide who's going to do what. And Reed Richards says Captain America should lead, and Wolverine's like, "What him? He's the least of us all. Who's going to follow him?" And Thor goes, "I will. 
I will follow him into the gates of Hades if need be. And I'm just like, yeah, that is, you know, the kind of allegiance that Cap gets. That's and, right. And, yeah. and that's one of the areas like, like when Shooter wrote Captain America and that Shooter got him right. And when Shooter wrote him in the Avengers, he got him right. And that's just my opinion, except for when Cap was upset about Iron Man's running the team. And we talked about that before on the Avengers uh, issues that we covered thought cap was a little bit out of out of character the way he was sitting and the and what he was doing there right in that issue but then again he was upset about the situation as it was with the avengers well it's the same with you it's not being the biggest the strongest the most power that makes you a hero or makes you a leader that's not you know if you think that's what it is and you're missing the point it's that this is the guy that of course who else are you gonna who else are you gonna pick to lead you and you can see i can see a little bit of the the roots in this, the way Stern wrote this, that he took when he started his uh, Superman in the 90s. He, was, he wrote that most of the 90s, right? Yeah. And I can see a little bit of the way he wrote Cap compared to... Yeah, and then he had that Avengers... Stern had an Avengers run, a long Avengers run. Well, he was writing... In the 200s. Right. Well, did he write The Siege? When they took when yeah. they when they were in the which is recently covered I think in Back to the Bends where they they attacked the mansion that's Stern isn't it? Yeah, that's Stern. That was first appearance in Nebula too, who was in Guardians of the Galaxy the the bad girl that uh, yeah. What's her name fought? That's kind of when I came on the Avengers. I think right right before you know they got blackout to cover the uh, mansion, and they basically beat Jarvis to a pulp. And so let's uh, look ahead. And uh, we had not really dis- dis- uh, agreed definitely what we're doing in our next episode. Was there anything in particular that you wanted to cover? Because mm. this was this was my pick here. Yeah, nothing in particular. I, what I was going to suggest for next for episode five would be like a grab bag that I was going to suggest. I would pick something. You pick something. And we'll cover two books. Okay. I don't know what. But just, you know, it's nothing that's necessarily connected. You can pick whatever you want, and I'd pick whatever I want. It would be more back to the bins like there without stealing too much of their thunder. But Well, no, I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, it, the thing is, is that we're not definitely going chronologically on this and right. all of that. Um, I think that we've, we've, we've gone to something that's been more modern, but uh, we haven't gone anything to really, really current. And I would really like to to maybe talk about some of his, uh, not the Fometti, but the Star Trek stuff, maybe the Romulan Crown, one of those uh, stories, or maybe Crew in mm-hmm. uh, in an upcoming episode. And maybe we'll do one of the issues of that in the next one. Yeah, you could do that. Crew might, would almost be a, you could do, yeah, you could do, wouldn't necessarily do the whole, I think we don't necessarily, if you pick one issue of Crew, you, we don't have to do the whole run. You can just pick right. one issue out of it, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna look all over that tonight and see which one I want to do, and then uh, see what you see what you come up with. Yeah, I've got I've got some ideas, some things floating around in the back of my head. Alrighty, cool. Well, let's take a break, and we'll come back, and we have some emails and mm-hmm. one iTunes review. Alrighty, we'll all be right. right back. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like? Gotcha, Mom. Or maybe. How about Tatsuo Ganida? Or in the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash landed on the planet Earth. 
Our most brilliant scientist and engineer spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember... Our Star Blazers! Or this? The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Gene, grappler ship's dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew home was a pen. Humanity, cattle. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes under 2TrueFreaks Presents Anime Freaks. And we're back. And now it's email reading time. To steal something from Fantastic Forecast. We have a couple emails. One, our first email is from, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Jack Bond. And he replied to our show on Ant-Man. Congratulations on the start of what seems to be an interesting series. I have ye- I have not yet seen the Marvel premiere issues in question, so I'm aware that I am, quite, I am not quite getting the full experience by listening to an audio podcast about artwork. It would seem to be more interesting. It should be more interesting with OMAC. I bought the series, and if I don't, and if I don't check uh, Deep Stash to see if I still have it, I'll have I'll have my memories to go by. I do have a contribution to make to the art discussion: the Great Zipatone debate. Earlier this month, I was reading the Essential Marvel two-in-one, and in number eighty-seven, Ant-Man makes the rounds some three years after his premiere, cover date May nineteen eighty-two. In black and white especially, it's striking when they, when, when they zip a tone his helmet. The penciling is by Ron Wilson in the midst of his long run on the book, with inks by Chick Stone, who's been doing a lot of, the, a lot of issues. Paging back and forth, I don't see a zip used in other issues, nor is it used for anything else in the issue. Knight's uh, shining armor, damsel's metal bikinis, or armada of gleaming starships. I would like to propose the strange idea that the special shading comes not from the pencil or inker, but from the character. By that I mean the model sheet, if Marvel uses such a thing, or reference files contain specific examples of shading, maybe even a written description. I don't mean that Scott Lang sent ants into the office at night to dip their feet in ink and march in formation across every drawing of his helmet. That is also a strange idea, but on a whole different, on a whole different order of magnitude. Keep up the good work, Jack. Well, thank you, Jack. Yeah, and as I understand, yeah, I understand. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Um, but what I was saying is I understand that uh, there are, you know, artist guides for most of the characters, you know, the main characters within, you know, each of the universes, uh, each of the companies. 
Marvel and DC. And recently we saw a uh, promo uh, artist guide for uh, DC. For did you, did you see that on Facebook? No, I didn't. It's it's making the rounds. Yeah, that one of the promo guides from 1982 came out, and it's all Jose Luis Garcia Lopez artwork, and it's all really beautiful. And it was basically uh, put out there for merchandising. Okay. So if you're gonna if you're gonna sit there and make a lot of stuff for party you know party stuff or whatever you you want to use this style of artwork as the uh, as the approved artwork, and I always thought it was a shame when when John Byrne was was at you know both companies that his artwork wasn't used more and more as promotional artwork for stuff like that, you know you see Superman or Batman or Spider Man stuff out there and you know okay that's not Byrne it just doesn't have the same snap. That Burns' artwork had. Now, uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez's work, though, is 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 really awesome. It's got its own zing to it. Uh, but I'm talking more in later years. You know, now when they do Superman, it's like Jim Lee stuff, which uh, I've never liked his Superman. Yeah, it's if you look at uh, before, I'll say pre Spider Man, the Raimi film. Usually, when you saw Spider Man, it, it was mostly looked like Ramita yeah. Senior. Now, after that. Maybe my timeline's off, but it seems to me that everything after that, after the movie, everything looked like Bagley. Because when that, yeah. that that wave of Spider-Man merchandise came in, and I've got, trust me, I bought it all. Mm-hmm. It's it's all looks like Bagley. And it's he, funny that they never tried to. I, I guess it makes sense in, in in some way that they never tried to use McFarlane's Spider-Man for the promotional stuff. I guess they just thought it was too out there. Probably. I've seen, you know, other than posters, I've never seen any of his stuff for anything. But now I don't know. They're not using Bagley now because I've recently bought a new shower curtain that's a Spider-Man and it just looks <laughs> kind of generic. It's not, you know, Bagley's got a, such a distinct style that you can tell it's him. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, when I let go of my car, I had these stickers on the side that looked like etching and they were Spider-Man. They came out in that era and I tried to take them off, but I couldn't. So <laughs> now I have no Spider-Man on my new truck. So. Oh, that bites! I know. Well, thanks, Jack. That was great. Uh, yeah, and it was an in- and it's an interesting email. point that maybe it's not. It's comes from the character, not from the artist or the anchor or anybody else involved in a book that a particular the character is, model, right? It's like, but if it doesn't, it should. It, you know, it's going to be the anchor's prerogative whether or not they want to use it. That's true. And some of those sheets I've seen that look a lot like. Remember when Ohatmu went to the single sheet pages? And you got a three, a three, uh, you know, a three, you know, a profile, three a front, ring binder th- with the, yeah. yeah, but you got a, a you got a, a profile, a front and a back shot. Those yeah. to me always re- resemble the character sheets. Like if you were to give this to someone, this is how you draw the character. Yeah, and and I can see that. It's funny because you know you go through a hot move, especially volume two, and it's like a burn catalog of oh, characters. Yeah. I, I love that. Well, because he did the he did the cover he did the cover for it that long yeah yeah he did that yeah you you brought that up last time or yeah before. that long yeah that's right I, I keep forgetting cover. that yeah <laughs> all right so who's next we have one from the one the only Mr. Luke Giaconetti of Earth Destructing Directive a podcast that if you're not listening to you should it's great and if you don't like Daikaiju or giant rubber monsters it's a good podcast. Who doesn't like Daikaiju? That's right. And he does a lot of stuff for to, uh, Toka, I'm a, my pronouncer, Tokusatsu. Uh, Ultraman. He just did one recently on Ultraman. Mm-hmm. All right. Ja, Luke writes, Dear or Burn Victims, 
Hey, dudes, I just finished listening to the first part of your coverage of John Burns' OMAC, and I have to say, have to say this. Great, now I have another book to keep an eye out for in the back issue bins. Curse you. Third degree burn. Curse you straight to heck. Hey, at least it's not an expensive book. You can actually get it for, I think you can get it for less than cover price now. True, true. Uh, it says, nothing against Don Heck, whose Iron Man work I have great affection for. <laughs> <laughs> Omex seems like a bizarre choice for someone like Byrne to work on. Uh, as a Kirby, as a big Kirby fan, I like the original Omex quite a bit just for its unabashed nuttiness. I also really dug the short-lived new 52 Omex series by Keith Giffen and Dan DiDio. Which was uh, which was a Kirby panache. Pastiche. 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 Not panache. Pastiche. But I was unaware of this series. It sounds like strong work. I already like uh, the Omec concept and dig burn art. And I dig black and white comics. So three out of three right here. It still seems like an odd choice for Burn. So I have to imagine that he has an affection for Kirby series to work on such a prestige format series, especially at the time. I liked how Burn seems to be talking about the inevitability of conflict and that blank is not only creating his own future, but also that he is predestined to fight battles for all time. That's pretty heady stuff for an update to a character who formally said things like, evacuate this section, I'm going to destroy it. Thanks, guys. Luke. Well, thank you, Luke, for writing in. Yeah, thanks. You know, thinking about that, you know, creating his own future and being predestined to fight battles for all time, when we read that very first story, I remember, you know, the doubt that Omek had when he was getting ready to kill big, you know, not just because, you know, what, what, what is it going to mean, but what is he going to do once he's done? Cause life would be meaningless. Right. It's, it's, uh, he's bred so, for one thing. And once he destroys his enemy, wh- where's he going to go? Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, I'd rather have that battle for all time. I'd rather have big as a villain always there for me to fight. I'll kill all those minions, but you know, leave him alone so I can keep going. It's never, and you see that storyline. Interesting thought. Yeah, that storyline. A lot of sometimes sci-fi where the somebody Star Trek Six, where when they are trying to you know try to develop this peace between the Klingons and the Federation, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, Admiral Cartwright. Admiral Cartwright. Sorry. I should remember this. I'm a Trek fan. Uh, <laughs> is working with the Klingons to basically keep the conflict going because that's that's kind of what they want. They want, you know, that's how that's the life they know as a soldier. Yeah. All right. Well. All right. Well, uh, we have an iTunes review. Yeah. So would you like this to read one, that? Yeah. This one comes from Gene, Gene, the podcasting machine, Hendrix. And Gene's got uh, a number of shows. It, you know, um, what, what all does he do? He does uh, Anime Freaks with Bill Robinson. Yep. Yeah, I love that one. And he does... Um, I write into it frequently. <laughs> he has the 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 Hammer Strikes podcast, mm-hmm. which is kind of a solo podcast he does. Uh, he can't... He's got to do more than that if he's called the podcasting machine. Yes, he does several. Uh, my apologies, Gene. We, we should okay. know what you're... <laughs> no, well, I'm drawing uh, a blank. Gene writes to us, it's burntastic. Okay. <laughs> and he says, okay, I'm biased. I love the works of John Byrne, and I've had the pleasure of talking to both Tim and Brian. That being said, this is a great podcast. What does he mean by that? That being said, I mean, <laughs> if he's talked to us, and, okay, and never mind. Anyway, these guys, yeah, these guys are great together. 
bring a great knowledge of John Byrne and they don't pull any punches. If something doesn't sit right with them, they say so. Well worth your time. And uh, thanks, Gene. I really appreciate that. And, and you know, the thing is, I, I can't say it enough. I love the work of John Byrne. I love the work that he does. And I know that we we pick apart this stuff uh, sometimes, you know, just the, the most tiniest minutiae. But it wouldn't happen if we didn't love the material in the first place. So yeah, right. If we didn't, if we didn't care about it, we wouldn't take the time or the effort to go through and look at all this stuff. So it's yeah. Now someone had asked me recently, um, "What do you think John Byrne thinks about your podcast?" And I'm gonna say, I don't care. And I know that probably sounds weird, but. You know, if you're someone like him, and I'm not saying like him or his personality or anything, I'm just someone that's in the position like he is, you know that there's going to be a bevy of critics all over that are going to say good things, that are going to say bad things. And they're going to say things that you agree with. They're going to say things you don't. They're going to get things that you do. And there's there's going to be times where they just don't get it, where we're going to miss a point of something that he as a writer or as an artist was trying to do. So he's not going to concern himself with what we're going to be saying on our podcast. So I don't, I don't think he honestly, I don't think he honestly cares what, what what critics and people think about him. He seems pretty outspoken, but I think we're giving an honest review of his work, and that's we're not trashing him. We're not we're not you know just uh, salivating over it and saying we're you know we're like fanboys and saying everything he does is perfect. I think we're giving an honest, legitimate. Re- response and critique of the work that we love and that's all you can ask for yeah and you know how it affected us because i mean the thing is we've been looking at this guy's work since we were kids and you know the thing is it's had an effect on me in one way or another it's it, it's it's something to do with the way i grew up and i'm not saying that he shaped the person that i am i'm not saying that i'm just saying that as part of the enjoyment of my youth was a lot of his work yeah I mean, and you, so it's it's in there, you know, it's in the head. Yeah, it's I mean, in, you often put on a red cape and jump off the house, don't you? Not 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 since the last <laughs> visit to the hospital. No, you said you weren't going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but uh, thanks, Gene. We do appreciate the, yeah. the work, and uh, I'm going to find a way to 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 thank him other than just writing him because uh, he was very supportive when we did our little Fantastic Four. Uh, podcast podcast it was nice to have him come on movie. everybody and everybody else that came on and uh everybody i will say everybody that's on two true freaks or anybody we've talked to about doing this show has been nothing but supportive and encouraging and just saying do it just get out there and do it don't worry about what it, you know if you think you're gonna be bad at it or not just do it and i can't thank any of them enough Yep. And uh, you know, that's, that's something for everybody else out there. If you've got something that you, that you like, that you have a passion for that you, you know, get out and talk about it, get out and tell other people what it is that makes you like that stuff or makes you hate that stuff. You know, just, you know, use your voice. And this is a great form to use your voice. Yeah. And there's no, there's no rules to it. I mean, just as long as you keep it, you know, don't get on there, just start ranting and raving about something. I don't think anybody's going to want to hear that. But if, you know, again, if sometimes you, you'll find you have more to say, than you thought you did. I thought coming onto this, I like, well, I don't, I don't, nobody's going to hear my opinion on this. And once you start doing it, you realize it all kind of comes out like, Oh, I do have more to say about this. And maybe my, my opinion does matter a little bit. 
Well, you definitely opened my eyes to a number of things that I missed. And hopefully I've, I've, I've opened yeah, your it eyes. Worked, it works both too. ways. Yeah, there's always stuff that I missed this or I missed that or you knew this. And that's that's what's great about this. And you meet other people that are interested in the same thing. So you kind of get a little community going. So it's it's been nothing but a very positive experience for me. Yeah. And, and another aspect of that positive experience is both of our wives actually get along with each other. Yeah. That's a great thing. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, uh, uh, things have been great. Do we have anything else? I don't think so. Um, we don't know what we're going to do next, but uh, we're going to – we'll surprise you. Uh, and yes. I think just I just say, you know, keep writing in. We appreciate all the letters we get. Uh, more iTunes. I think it helps people find the show more. Uh, I need to be a little more uh, dil- diligent about posting stuff on Third Degree Burn Facebook. Uh, I've been a little lack, lack about that, so I apologize. But look for another – our second part of – well, by the time you hear this, it'll be out, so that'll make it redundant. So, never mind. Hey, how long? How long is OMAC three and four? Is it? It's not. Uh, OMAC as three as and four two. won't be as long as the first one. I think it'll be uh, two hours under, maybe hour and a half. Okay. Cool. They won't because we had so much that build up to the first one about what the book was about, and before we actually got yeah. into the book. And the second part, we kind of get into it and get it over with. So, yeah, I think hour okay. and a half, two hours be be about right. Well, I thought us just doing one book today that we'd have a short show, but uh, right. that's what I thought too. But we, we went on for quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. Hey, thanks a lot for third degree burn. I'm Brian Hughes, and I'm Tim Elliott.
listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. If you're interested in any of the books we cover in the show, just head over to tutufreaks.com and use the Amazon link to shop. This doesn't cost any extra, but it really helps support the shows. Until next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. All right, I'll be mad.